You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we'll be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Simon and I'm JR and uh, we're doing the Stephen Moffat specials tonight and because I'm a bit crap I've got no notes all right they're, they're great should we go <laughs> <laughs> they are great uh, yeah okay that's it <clears throat> I was mad <laughs> <laughs> no arguments from me <laughs> okay fantastic no I forgot we were recording tonight and uh I didn't have time to put any notes down. <laughs> I just about had time to tot up the scores on the stories. Okay. So, uh, apologies to anybody who wrote notes. You won't be hearing them. <laughs> Tim, Tim Gamble probably said some really pertinent things that I disagree with. Yeah, and David Kitchen probably said some really pertinent things that I disagreed with. Yeah. Is there anybody you'd like to disagree with, Simon? Dylan Reese. Um, no one, no one I can with him. Really? <laughs> no one I can mention by name. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Shall we? Simon's so balanced. <laughs> no, he's not balanced at all. Right. We'll just go through the stories then. Uh, they were voted for by the listeners. There are seven stories, six of which are Christmas specials, and the other one's the Day of the Doctor, which won. Uh, <laughs> really? Hey, the Day of the Doctor got half as many points again as the next nearest story. Yeah, this thing about Doctor Who, it just constantly surprises me. Yeah. But the story that came in last got half as many points Less than half as many points as the story above it, so it came in really, really. So I can't so for a moment think what that is either. I think it might be one that I quite like. <laughs> oh, okay, it, but it? you do know what it is, Simon, don't you? I think so. Yeah. Go on and say it. What the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe? Yeah, it came in oh. very much last. Oh. But the Doctor, the Widow and the Wardrobe. Okay, out of the Stephen Moffat specials and out of everything Stephen Moffat's written, not just for Doctor Who, but everything else as well, sticks out like a sore thumb. It's got virtually none of the sort of trademark Moffat dialogue. It's got virtually none of the sort of trademark Moffat plot twists. Mm. It The first 15 minutes, I think, is pretty good Doctor Who. Yeah. Yeah. where the Doctor turns up at the house and he's got things going on. But as soon as they go through that wardrobe, it just really sort of turns into a pile of mush. It's got this pretty abysmal comedy scene with uh, the Androzani major miners or whatever they are, mm. the tree miners, whatever, which throws in a bit of peril about what's going to happen to the forest and the tree people. But... It's just really badly formed and really underwritten. And Matt likes it, I like so he's it. going to no. tell us what's great I, about it. I like it. it. I like the ideas in it. So the 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 Wooden King and Queen, and it's been ages since I've seen it, and I've probably only seen it once, but I can remember thinking it's not as bad as people say. So the, so the setting, the World War II setting, 
and the forest it just felt it felt clean to me it felt simple it was very very it was a very it's very very, basic, very, very simple. simple but that's not i don't think that's a failing at that time i think it is different from <clears> things <throat> stephen moffat's written and i think that makes it quite good well it makes it different slightly refreshing do you think in some respects people do look at it and balance it against the other specials that Stephen Moffat's done. Yeah, but a lot of people, especially old school Doctor Who fans, don't like the other specials Moffat's done. Mm. And so you would think if this one's different, they'd be more inclined to like it. Yeah, that's true. And I think it doesn't stand out. Uh, there's nothing. There's nothing sort of. I rewatched it last Christmas, right? Along with the other Moffat specials, and it was poor. Okay. There's no two ways about it. So where where was remind me where does this sit in the in Moffat's tenure? It's the second Christmas special. It's the second Christmas special. What was the one before Comes that? Comes between Christmas Carol was oh, the first one. Christmas Carol and a snowman's Blimey. the third one. Because Christmas Carol just comes across as something really quite. Um, well, we'll get there. Yeah. But it comes <laughs> after. Yeah, do you mean mature in in comparison? It's well, like a stat. It comes after series six and before <laughs> series seven, and you know. There's no two ways about it. Stephen Moffat was having a bad time at that point for reasons that can't be discussed. And I think this is the one episode that really shows. It just, it just, it's got some nice ideas, hmm. but they just, they don't go anywhere. They don't get explored. Yeah. And, you know, normally, even when Stephen Moffat's not exploring stuff, he'll fall back on his other tricks to disguise that. But he doesn't disguise the fact that he's not exploring anything here. Right. There's just lots and lots for 45 minutes of interminable scenes of people just walking around hmm. and not really saying anything of any interest to one another. And then at the end, it's got that really sloppy, soppy ending with the pilot coming back, which... It's Christmas. Yeah, it's Christmas, but that scene doesn't get earned. Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose it does. It does. It does put all its cards on the quality of the actors. So yeah. it's one of those stories <clears throat> where, if the actors can pull it off, then it works. And, and she's might, good, Claire yeah, Skinner. Yeah. But the trouble is, she doesn't get an awful lot to work with with her character. No. Mm -hmm. She turns up. She finds out the forest's going to get destroyed. Mm. She jumps in this giant spacesuit, spaceship type thing. And does something about it, but she doesn't earn the right to be in the mm. spacesuit. She doesn't, other than this weird meeting with Bill Bailey and Arabella Weir. Mm. Uh, it's like, uh, I tell you what it's like. It's a bit like a murder mystery where there's a murderer at the start and the detective turns up. And spends a lot of time walking around in the garden until somebody comes out and tells him who the murderer is. Mm. I mean, I guess, I guess seen in comparison with the Christmas Carol, so they're both literary homages. So, well, so Christmas, may, maybe yeah. he wanted, maybe he should have gone slightly further. Maybe he just needed to be well, a, bit, a bit more experimental with it. And well, he didn't. A bit more Narnia. The trouble, yeah, but that's the trouble. It's got the title is inspired by the Narnia stories, yes. and the fact that they go through a wardrobe basically to get to yeah. this mm -hmm. winter wonderland is inspired by the yes. Narnia novels but once they get there yeah there's nothing else in the world war 2 setting as well mm. i tell you one thing but once they're through the wardrobe that's it yeah yeah one thing one thing that i remember happened happened in, in verse <clears throat> is i find that the trailers for these specials work in an inverse way in as much as if i really like the look of the trailer 
And okay. they're usually yeah. disappointing. Not yeah. because of self up for it, it's just the way it works. And I remember the trailer for it being really enticing and, yeah. and all the the business of the stuff growing in the trees. That was kind of almost given more importance than there actually was. So the the story in my head was more interesting than what actually happened. Well, maybe because it was so atmospherically based and so visually based that it makes for a really good trailer because they've got Mm. lots of images to pull on, Mm. but actually you don't get the story that you need. And in in verse, you might get a trailer that doesn't give much away. But, But I think that's why I quite... I didn't mind it because for a Christmas special, I was quite happy to have something that was quite atmospheric mm. and and concept-based. And I, I, remember just, the time, I, I don't remember it being that bad when I watched it, but having mm. said that, I don't think I've watched it a second time, and that no, speaks no, volumes. Well, me, me, well, me like a, my reaction to it the first time was, this is a... And this is, it's in my review, I think. I said this is a Doctor Who story, really, for the CBBS channel. Mm. It's about on that level. Mm. And I thought... And I thought when I was writing the review, this is Stephen Moffat, this will grow on me the more I watch it. But the more I've seen it, the less I like it, frankly. Maybe it's mm. because maybe it's because I'm not a huge fan of the Christmas specials in general. Because they have to be special. And Maybe it's and, because I'm but, not a fan but, of the Christmas. But if you think about it, they're not gonna let me finish. They make it? the no. entire they make the whole series trying to make each each episode special. They're not going to yeah, make an yeah. episode unspecial. Well, so if you do that, and then you have to make the Christmas special special, you're suddenly making something extra special, and you can't, you can't achieve that. Mm. Other than you can't spend more money because they don't get more money usually. So I don't know. I don't know. I never quite trust the Christmas <laughs> trust the Christmas specials, and this <laughs> one at least was quite simple, pure, and honest. It wasn't trying to sort of. Do do cartwheels? It was just it was just what it was. It suddenly it suddenly occurred to me. It reminded me of like an Nesbit thing, hmm. which I know was the kind of the tone, it? <coughs> especially with the father coming back at the end. That's yeah. five children in it, isn't it? But it's also very Forest of the Night. Mm. It's that kind of it's that kind of. I mean, obviously the the forest is a connection, but also <laughs> a similar story arc, and also a similar. <clears throat> It's one where nature's fighting thing. back against yeah. technology. Yeah, and mm. forest, <clears throat> of, forest of the Night has grown on on me, and I really like that sort of. Oh, I love that atmospheric thing. But then I think in in the Forest of the Night, Ian Cottrell Boyce is it Ian Cottrell Boyce? Have I got Frank. Frank Cottrell Boyce? Where did I get Ian from? Frank Cottrell Boyce actually writes a story where all the layers sort of yeah meet and collide, and it might be Forest of the Night. It is a version of the Doctor Wither and the Wardrobe. That's more complete. The works, really. Yeah, <clears throat> it's interesting. As much like the some of the criticism Douglas Adams gets, we get all these nice elements because mm. I think a lot of the elements are lovely. Yeah, they're not <clears throat> tying together. It's a curate egg. It's mm. good in parts. It's the wooden people. I didn't really understand. I loved wooden people. I like the way they looked. I loved yeah, the, I loved the idea of of you know. And he went. You went. He came back to it with the wooden Cyberman as well. So mm. there is this idea. He just said of Cyberman. Can I just say? Cyberman. He just said Cyberman. I know. <laughs> you sound um the tr- the trouble with the wooden people is Cybermen. What are they there for? I mean, all there's lots of things in there that sort of represent things, but there's no exploration of what anything represents. It's a very simple story. Mm. Nature is under threat, and this woman looking out for her kids fights back. But it just it doesn't take anything to get there. It's mm. It's about 15 minutes worth of story spread out over 60 minutes worth of episode. 
Because he didn't, because, I don't know, what he forgot to do was put a plot in there. She turns up, she sees this thing happening, she stops it. Mm. Mm. And, you know, after, especially after A Christmas Carol, and after Series 6, which had, you know, had a, a, Series 6 has a very small, simple plot, really, but it spreads it out across five episodes with some detours mm. in between. Yeah. But actually, it stretches it out far enough that that story probably could have done with an extra episode. Mm. And then you get to the Doctor, the Widow and the Wardrobe, and you think, well, this could have been half an hour long and you wouldn't have missed anything. Yeah. It's a shame because, like you say, you know, the bit where they get to the forest and you see the trees and these things are growing off the trees, you just think, this is going to be magical because the first 15 minutes was excellent. And then it just kind of disappears. Mm. Shall we talk about what came in sixth then? Okay. <clears throat> the Husbands of River Song. Okay. Normally I'd preface these by giving some clues in the comments, <laughs> but I can't do that tonight. Husbands of River Song. Maybe the reason it didn't come in higher was because that was last year's Christmas special. And it it's hasn't not matured in... Yeah, yeah there is a nostalgic... There is component of things, yeah. Particularly to Christmas specials, I think, because you're watching them on Christmas Day. So it's tied in with lots of memories. Because I can remember where I am <clears throat> for each Christmas special. I can't remember where I was for each episode of Doctor Who, but for the Christmas specials, it's something... And especially with Stephen Moffat, I find the Stephen Moffat stories... It's not that it takes two or three viewings to understand it, but it's that it takes two or three viewings or a bit of time or both for it to sort of sink in mm. what what yeah. it's about. Because yeah. there's so much with Stephen Moffat that's pyrotechnics that sometimes you don't really get to the substance underneath. Mm. I mean, just to detour slightly, but A Christmas Carol, I remember the first time I watched that, I thought, well, that was excellent. It did all these things and all these things and all these things, but it wasn't until months later where I thought, and actually, it tells a really nice story that properly tugs at the heartstrings and means something. We'll get to that. Husbands of River Song does that too. Mm. It doesn't have a very complicated plot, but unlike The Doctor and the Widow and the Wardrobe, it's filled with all the sort of moffety things. Mm. There's lots of characterization, lots of backstabbing, mm. lots of people who don't know what's going on, and then there's a moment of revelation for somebody. And then at the end, he does something he does an awful lot, but he turns everything on its head. Mm which is one of Stephen Moffat's best tricks. But in The Husband's A River Song, when he turns it on his head, he turns it on its head and gives it a really emotional payoff that probably wasn't what you were expecting from the first 45 minutes. I think I don't think I was a, as big a fan of <laughs> The Husband's A <clears throat> River Song. And I think it's because it didn't have someone like Clara in it or... or um, or it didn't. It, it felt like it was companionless, and it had River Song, but well, she's not playing the companion. She's saying, it's all these big, had... big, strong, round characters, isn't it? I'm not saying mm. Clara isn't, but she's the kind of the texture. She yeah, texture. and and at that point, I'm, I still hadn't. So the Clara and the Capaldi Doctor are very much a, a good pair because she does the caring, so he doesn't have to, and that's and that's how it was all the way through, and so losing her. I think that's the first time you sort of see what happens when he loses her. And I felt that absence, I think. Mm. But I think that The Husband's of a Song was a story about losing somebody, yeah. which is why I think mm. it resonates. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It just wasn't... 
It didn't have no. that component in it. No, and I think I think the Capaldi what? doc the Capaldi doctor lost something, and they didn't quite get it back. Well, I don't. Yeah, but I don't think they were supposed to because in the Husbands of River Song, Capaldi's playing Clara and yes. River Song's playing the Doctor. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So what you've got is actually a Christmas special that looks at the Doctor from a different perspective that you're not quite used to. Yeah, and I think for my Christmas specials, I quite like the Doctor to be the Doctor. I, just, I think there's a slight, something slightly <laughs> uncomfortable about the Doctor not, not being... I mean, it's funny, and I, 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 I'm not saying I didn't like it. I can, I just saying that I can see why it wasn't placed... Higher, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, I can see why it didn't beat Day of the Doctor. Well, I think <laughs> the five stories above because, it are all especially yeah. strong anyway. Yeah, yeah. I think what I liked about this was that at the end of Series 9, Stephen Moffat had written a story about a breakup. Mm. And he'd written it through all these sort of sci-fi allegories. But really, it was about the breakup of a couple. And The Husbands of River Song essentially is about when you run into your old lover in the street ten years later... And she doesn't recognise you. And so basically, The Husbands of River Song is ten years on from Hell Bent. Mm. If, in the sort of metaphorical kind of a way. And it felt like a sequel to it in that way to me. Yeah. But as sequels go, it's pretty light. I think also maybe if it had led into a series, so if there had been some sort of, like, The Snowman, that it led into a series, I think... We haven't got that yet, <clears throat> so so maybe it's only with a new series that that I can sort of reassess it. It feels like Planet of the Dead in yeah. that here is an episode that's standing, yeah, alone, and and the moment is just hanging out there with its ass hanging out, yeah, and it needs it needs something. <laughs> I need to see what happens to the Capaldi Doctor next in order to feel comfortable with it because it needs to be a middle story. It needs to be in the middle of his story, not at the moment. It's the end of his story. It needs mm. historical it perspective. Yeah, yeah. And at the moment, it doesn't have any. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Return of Doctor Mysterio is not going to give it that. No. Well, this is why. This is why I mean, two this, I didn't, well, this is, yeah, this is why I'm feeling the loss of maybe I'm feeling Couple the loss of, of any any Doctor Who between the two Christmas specials because Christmas specials for me have to be a kind of a a glue between two series, yeah, and not the other way around, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah this will be two Christmas specials will be consecutive episodes, which mm. is just yeah, a bit bonkers, really, isn't yeah. it? I mean, it will it'll be fine. And it will work. Well, but in it the just end, won't, yeah. it's just not what... I mean, I, and I'm not one of those people who are sort of... I don't spend my time on Facebook complaining that the BBC is destroying Doctor Who by not having a new serial. I can see why they haven't had it. But that doesn't change the fact that it's going to, for, to, for me, diminish the individual stories that they're showing now. Mm. Because Doctor Who is at its best when it is a block of episodes shown on a weekly basis, I think. Mm. Well, since it came back, it's always worked as an overarching story, hasn't it? Yeah. And the thing with the Christmas specials is, even if you include bits of overarching stories in, a Christmas special by itself isn't going to tell an overarching story. No, no. It can't do, because it's a single episode. Have either, have either concluded something with a regeneration, or it's sort of kicked it into the next season somehow. Occasionally it just <clears> stands there. I mean, the Doctor, the Windham and the Wardrobe kind of just flaps there without doing either like of those Voyage things. of the Damned yeah so yeah yeah and uh, yeah right shall we yes. the story that came in fifth well this one is 
Well, other than the fact that I like the four above it, but this one pisses me off a bit, quite frankly. The story that came in fifth is The Time of the Doctor. Oh. Which I think is... I just think is utterly charming. I think it's one of the loveliest things that's ever gone out in the name of Doctor Who. Oh, I Uh, liked it. No, no, I like this one. I'm I'm agreeing. Um, I think think it should be... I think it's possibly because we we are aware that it's misunderstood. Well, from my viewpoint, it's misunderstood. But I, but the okay, the issue with Time of the Doctor is probably that people have a certain idea of what they think Doctor Who should be, mm. and regardless of what else the program does, people need to see it doing those other things as well. Mm. So Russell T Davis, for example, can tell a, a season where he tells the most emotionally impactful story that Doctor Who's ever told before or since. But as long as he's got Daleks fighting Cybermen on Westminster Bridge in the middle of all that, that's fine. Mm. What the time of the Doctor does, (coughs) and I think what the time of the Doctor does is more integral to what Doctor Who is than any story that there's ever been. Because... The Time of the Doctor is about the assertion of what the Doctor does. And it's made absolutely explicit in that speech by Clara at the end to the Time Lords. That speech by Clara to the Time Lords at the end of that episode looks like it's sort of irrelevant to the story that's being told. Because it looks like she's just saying that to get the next regeneration cycle. Mm. But actually that speech by Clara to the Time Lords is the story being told. Because mm. we've just spent 60 minutes watching the Doctor being that thing that she's talking to the Time Lords about. But you know what? It's, I think it's even smarter because I think I think this is the transition from Matt Smith to Capaldi in that gradually the relationship between Clara and the Matt Smith Doctor shifts from Clara being the traditional assistant uh, and, and then as, as Matt Smith ages, Clara <laughs> becomes his carer. So mm. by the end of it, you see her basically treating him like an elderly man, which he is, mm. caring for him. And then the next story, you get Clara and an older doctor acting as there's his carer. So of course, of the thing... Little, whether they're intentional or not, I've no yeah, idea. Well, there's so many I mean, but little... even if it's not intentional, that it links with that. Yeah. Just that shift in their relationship through the story. Mm. So she goes from, she goes from, you know, his contemporary to his, to his carer. And of course, that's mirrored in a Christmas special two years later, where she ages and he yeah. stays the same age. Yeah. So these things, whether they're deliberate themes or whether they're just recurring motifs, here's, here's an interesting that you know you've got your RCD and what did he do for Tenant when he left? You know, oh well, I've got to give him this big climax. So what did he do? He stretched out this big long goodbye to all of his companions. So that's RTD's idea of what to do. Hmm. And I don't know whether, you know, it's an individual whether they think that's a good idea or not. Um, I don't know if there's any purring on the microphone there. My cat just jumped up on the table. Um, They'll have heard, and if they didn't hear, you don't need to say. <laughs> <laughs> they would have worked out what it was. Um, and then the contrast to that is what does Stephen Moffat do for Matt Smith's doctor? Well, he gives him a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, and and he takes him from his youth, which is the big thing about Matt Smith, mm. all the way to being an old man, mm. and a whole story there, you know, a whole lifetime that we don't see, much like the War Doctor. Yeah, what? So the, the the 
And the, the, dif- the difference is, is with, incredible. with Russell T. Davis's last, the last Tenant story, that was Russell T. Davis kind of celebrating his own era rather than celebrating the Tenth, the tenth Doctor yeah. and his death. So that, that 10 minute sequence wasn't about the David Tennant Doctor, it was about Russell T. Davis saying goodbye. Mm. And obviously Stephen Moffat doesn't do that because Stephen Moffat's still, still there. Mm. But that makes the end of Matt Smith's Doctor is so much more powerful for me than the David Tennant Doctor because it's about the Matt Smith Doctor. Yeah, and so it's highly about. Well, and more about that, it's about just Doctor Who as a whole, really. Mm. That's one of the things that it comes to in the end is that this is just a story that talks about what the programme is. Mm. The other thing it does as well, of course, is... Ever since Caves of Androzani, people have been hankering after a regeneration story where there's so much less at stake. It's not the entire universe Hmm. that's at stake and the Doctor isn't performing some heroic act that's going to be witnessed by the entire universe who can pat him on the back before he regenerates. Hmm. Regeneration stories always seem to feel the need to go bigger and go grander. Yeah. And Caves of Androzani was the one that didn't. And ever since then, fans have hankered after one that doesn't go bigger and go grander. Well, Stephen Moffat, in The Time of the Doctor, he throws in Starlegs and Cybermen and Weeping Angels and Sontarans because, well, because he can and because yes. that's what it's there to do. All of which aren't really a threat in the story. No, exactly. they're, just, they're just there to be sort of... They're yeah. just there so that you can name-check those for yeah. the kids who are watching mm-hmm. or the people who like mm-hmm. whatever who are yeah. watching. But actually, that story is about a man who has spent his entire life rootless mm. and decides to put down roots and make a stand about something. And actually, Time of the Doctor is the quiet regeneration story that everybody wanted. Yeah. They just don't seem to recognise that and that's also, what it was. Also, like Caves of Androzani, they've been hankering after a story where the Doctor really gets screwed up. Yeah. Because mm. that's what happens in Caves of You can see the scars in Caves of Androzani. <clears throat> and you kind of get that with Tenant's End because, you know, his clothes get a bit ruffled. And he falls, and he falls through, through a window, yeah. yeah. But here, you get the equivalent of a new series. The Doctor really gets screwed up because he ages. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, ver- he, pretty he much, literally lays his life down. He pretty much and... dies of old age yeah. in the end. <sighs> I think it's, char- yeah, like you said, a charming story. I think it's a wonderful Doctor Who story. Mm, I think yeah. it's absolutely lovely. And, and let's not forget as well, as far as the Doctor's concerned, it's the end of his life, and he gives the end of his life. Yeah. It, he knows it's the end. It may be in voting that it gets eclipsed by Day of the Doctor because it's part of this trilogy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Name of the Doctor, Day of the Doctor, Time of the Doctor. It's part of this trilogy of which that central, that middle bit is story the, yeah, yeah, yeah. is so, so powerful. Well, this so is the I thing, yeah, it gets eclipsed by it because that was such a good episode yeah. and even people who were expecting to hate it, most of them seem to have ended up loving it. Yeah, they did, they so did this was, lovely thing of hating Moffat then suddenly love him for that, and then having oh, we've got to go back se- to hating selective him again. memory. Yeah, I wonder what would happen if Matt Smith had regenerated at the end of Day of the Doctor. You would have lost time with the Doctor, but mm. I think it would have. I think it still would have worked. I think that was slightly unfortunate. It might have been an extra wasn't. element, but unnecessary. Well, the story wouldn't have been told because, and this is the thing about him knowing it's his last life. Well, obviously Stephen Moffat had to. Oh yeah, change his plans around. When certain things happened, um, this ain't well. I don't know whether I can say this really, 
but it seems like Paul McGann might <coughs> at one point have been in Day of the Doctor in the John Hurt part, and the BBC wanted somebody bigger. Okay. Mm. That being the case, Stephen Moffat wouldn't have had to think about whether Matt Smith would be the very last Doctor in the regeneration mm. cycle. So it would have been a more regular regeneration. But I'm assuming... He didn't really. He didn't really to, need to at this time because he used the handy doctor, not the handy doctor. Yeah, well, the yeah. handy doctor as an excuse. Yeah, I always got the impression that that was he just decided this was the right time to actually get rid of the twelve regeneration cycle. Well, and I start, think start from scratch. I think he did it a bit awkwardly. Oh no, I don't. Well, you had, well, I think you he had is. Max Smith explaining. You I had think the doctor explaining why he was the final regeneration to the audience rather than to Clara. Well, yeah, there are some awkward things about it because of the fact that it was kind of put on his plate. Yeah. But if when Matt Smith was the 11th Doctor, Stephen Moffat's looking at it being another five or ten years before yeah. it needs to be addressed. We're talking about the regeneration cycle now. Hmm. So he probably isn't even thinking of bringing that up at any point before he sits down to write the name of the Doctor. Yeah. But when he discovers that he's going to have to put somebody else in the day of the Doctor. And, you know, if the stories are true about, well, we don't know who's under contract, and it's like the five Doctors, and basically it goes down to the wire, and they're mm. almost ready to film before they really know what's happening. Even if that's true, he must have suspected, at least several months ahead, that he was going to have to do something like that, and that must have been the battle plan he had in mind that he was going to bring in this character, the War Doctor. Yeah. And the War Doctor turns up at the end of the name of the Doctor. So we know that from the start of the name of the Doctor, this is the story that he's going to tell. And of course, the story is not what is the Doctor's name, but what are the things that we do in the name of the Doctor. Mm. And the way that trilogy finishes is with Clara saying, well, the name of the Doctor is the Doctor because that's the name that we do all these things in the name of. Mm. Yeah. And so that's how that trilogy goes. But the wider point is that prior to those three episodes, Stephen Moffat doesn't know that Matt Smith's going to be the last Doctor. But when it transpires that he's going to have to add an extra Doctor in between, then he realises that it's so close mm. that either he is going to have to do that end of the regeneration cycle in his very last episode, which may have been slightly awkward in terms of how it might have been received. Mm. Or else he's going to have to leave it for somebody else. And that's the risk. You leave it for somebody else and they either completely ignore it or they invent something completely new or whatever. And Stephen Moffat, regardless of what people think of his writing, is a fan and he wanted to do the thing that had been yeah. introduced yeah. in The Five Doctors. So he said, right, let's bring it forward to now and do the thing that's in The Five Doctors. And then we get past that hurdle and we don't need to talk about it again mm. for another 25 mm. or 50 years or whatever. So I think he just... Some people moan about the fact that he brought it forward. But I think actually he was doing fandom a service by bringing it forward mm. and just I getting just, it out of the way. I don't mind that he brought it forward. I would have probably just ignored it. And yeah, just, just carried on regenerating him and just pretended that... Well, I think that was a temptation. Yeah. And I think that's why Russell T. Davis put that line in the Sarah Jane Adventures about 507 yes, yeah, yeah, bodies yeah. or whatever. Yes, yeah. So that if it came to it and somebody wanted to ignore it, at least that as well had been foreshadowed to mm. an extent by mm. a line of dialogue earlier. Yeah. 
But Stephen Moffat's the kind of person who won't ignore things. Yeah. As we know about the uh, half-human thing that's now been brought up as well. <clears throat> but yeah, should we move on then yes. to the story that's halfway up this list? Okay. It's the snowmen. Oh, oh I like the snowmen. Yeah, but I think we're in an area now where the three stories that are above it are all strong for different reasons. Mm. And so the snowmen... I think the thing about the snowmen is it's a really nice episode. It's a really great story. But unlike, say, Time of the Doctor, Husbands of River Song, Last Christmas, Christmas Carol, Day of the Doctor, I don't think the snowmen, the snowmen especially does anything. No, I don't. I don't. It's the sort of middle story in the introducing Clara. Yeah. And the way it kills her off at the end mm. is meaningful and potent and you know, emotionally engaging. Mm. But actually, in terms of Doctor Who, almost all Stephen Moffat's other specials move the story of Doctor Who along as well. Yeah. I was going to say, it's it's far more along the lines of what you were saying about what a Christmas special... This is like a holding episode. Yeah. This Mm. is like a, you've had Asylum of the Daleks, you're going to get the Bells of St. John, you're going to get the name of the Doctor where you find out what it all means. This is an episode to tick you along in between. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the one thing I didn't like about it was the snowmen. In it. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I didn't like the realization of the snowmen. What the the, the mouths? The actual. The well, just just the whole it. thing. Mm. I just didn't. It just sort of felt very CGI. Cartoonesque. Quite often, I would have rather have just had the yeti. They should have just embraced <laughs> embraced the yeti. Well, I still say that they should have done a Wild West story where they have Sasquatch that turn out to be okay. the Yeti redeployed. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> but then they did a Wild West story where they had the gunslinger. So Sasquatch. They Sasquatch would be Canada. North, yeah, North America. North, North America. Okay. Or Canada. Oh, yeah, yeah. I they think they're... What am I thinking, Wendigo? Uh, Wendigo is Native American, so that would be further south. Okay. okay. I so think with, no, with no knowledge. Whatsoever. I don't. No, I, I, what knowledge I have is from reading Marvel comics. Sasquatch and Bigfoot are <laughs> yeah. synonymous, and Bigfoot it's like in in the the kind of the wild north. Mm. I think it's in the states as well as Canada. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's, I only know it from Alpha Flight like, comics. Um, but I think <laughs> I it's northwest, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. But Which you know be, what I mean. It could be Christmassy. Well, do you know what I mean, though? Yeah. They missed a trick there, didn't mm-hmm. they? Yeah. But so back on the snowmen. Well, gold might. It would be you know, gold rush. It would be set during gold rush. That's, sorry. That's what, <laughs> that's what, I, would, that's what I would do. Yeah, yeah, Because, you yeah, know, yeah, that yeah, kind of not? pioneer gold, gold miners going west. Mm-hmm. And finding Sasquatch. Yeah. Only to discover, and this would fit in almost perfectly with the timing of the snowmen. Mm-hmm. Because you're still talking about a prequel to The Abominable Snowmen. Yes. Rather yeah. than a sequel to The Web of Fear. Yeah. That was the oddest moment in The Snowmen, where all of a sudden he picks up this map of the underground. See, I like that bit. It's, it's, it's odd. shoehorned. But, oh, very much so. But <laughs> it it did it for me. It worked for me. <clears throat> and that was before we knew about Web of Fear. Mm. So, right, this was the year before Web of Fear. Oh, yeah, because yeah, the rumors... time of the Doctor was after, so this was, yeah. Well, the rumours were circulating a little bit during 2012, but yeah. they didn't really take off till about March of 2013. Right, yeah. And this was obviously the December 2012 mm-hmm. special, so... Oh. 
So the rumours were spread far enough that uh, Stephen Moffat can put a map of the London Underground <laughs> into the snowmen, but not quite far enough that anybody watching it knew mm. the reason why he'd done it. Yeah. It was a nice nod for fans, mm. but you can't fan service. Or rather, if you're fan servicing, it has to be nods rather than devoting whole stories to it. Yeah. Like this Attack is, of the Side. This is preempting Web of Fear turning up. Yes. Wasn't it? Yes. Mm. It was. Yeah. Well, it was found by this point, but it hadn't been yeah, returned at this point. Um, what's odd about that is this is a prequel to The Abominable Snowman. Mm. And you see, I never really understood Matt Smith's doctor's memory in this story. It's like when the great intelligence turns up, it's like, oh, I think I recognise that. And here's a map of the London Underground. Mm. That's going from something really vague to something really specific. Yeah. That's why it stood out for me. It didn't... It jarred. Okay. But not in a bad way. No. I just think the great intelligence part of that story was slightly jarring in places. Yeah. Yeah. And there there are a lot of elements, because there's the frozen nanny as well, isn't there? Which, Mm. Which I thought worked well. But well, you could nice have you could have just yeah, but you could have just had an army of frozen nannies by the end of it, rather than keen on the effect, if I'm honest. But oh, and I loved the uh, I loved the memory worm sequence. Oh, yeah, that, was was that was hilarious. Yeah, yeah, it was huge. Oh, yeah, because the, the and of course he uses that as well. The yes. memory worm at the end of the episode. Yeah, so I really like I really like the Sontaran. Strax. Yeah, Strax. I found mm. it really funny. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I melted really? on that because up to that point I'd really resisted the comedy Sontarans. Right. I kind of, I don't know if you've listened to me withering on about it on here, but possibly. I, I kind of feel like it undermines the Sontaran thing. But Sontarans have always been comedic. Yes. Lynx, Lynx was a comedy yeah. Sontaran. But he was the only one we're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Which which kind of removes the threat. But then the Sontarans aren't there as a threat anymore, I suppose. I don't know. Yeah, but I mean. Does Laurel and Hardy undermine the threat of Hitler? Blimey. In what way? What? <laughs> well, what I'm saying is they're two members of the same species, but they don't have to behave in exactly the same way as one That's another. It. Yeah. And so for me... Yeah, but there is an isolation. <laughs> but, but when they turn up on television, there's an isolation to them. There so is. There's, with, with yeah, monst- and then we see with the three, monsters, don't we? you're looking in at effectively... Time of the Doctor, yeah. what do we see? We see three bumbling Sontarans, yeah, don't yeah. we? I think, they are, I think they have been retooled as fairly kind mm. of... Because there's... They are, you know, they are faintly ridiculous. But I think in the original, they were sort of blustering, comedic. Mm, mm. I well, think Lynx it's a, it's a, yeah. was a slight comedy figure in mm. Time Warriors. Don't Warrior get me wrong, I'm not getting precious yeah. because I think it works. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Stephen yeah, Moffat doing comedy, it works. But mm. Well, the point I was making was that this is part of Stephen Moffat's universe, mm. is that you start to treat these creations less like generic species yeah. And more like human beings with, you know, a different kind of skin and from a yes. different planet. Mm. And so, so in a way, that's why every time we meet the Weeping Angels, they're doing something slightly different. Yeah. Because the Weeping Angels work like sects, almost. Mm-hmm. And the Silence too even says at one point in one of the episodes, they're just a religious order. Mm the ones who are trying to um, assassinate the Doctor. I guess the only downside of enhancing the comedy of the Sontarans is it retrospectively reduces the threat in the Sontarans in their first story, in the Sontaran stratagem. Because that's the one 
That's the is that Russell T. Davis? That's the only one That's where they Russell treat seriously. Yeah. yeah, and they try to make them a threat, but actually, mm. now looking at that. Oh yeah, yeah that's kind of ridiculous because they put all their faith in this stupid kid. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, well, like a lot of monsters, they've always been a bit ridiculous because yeah. most monsters but are. They have to be. Then I think back to the Santorin experiment, and I just think, God, they're so nasty. Yeah, because they don't. You know, they're one of these these monsters where they think a completely different way. They see mm. no reason to yeah. show any kind of. Mm. It's like the, it's like the Zygons now. They've been retooled. I mean, mm. they only appeared once in the original series. But now they've got quite a distinctive sort of yeah. sympathetic but creepy. Mm. Well, you've got to be honest. Be. If you look back at Terror of the Zygons, it's beautifully designed yeah, and yeah, it's got just, great characterization. Just hissing and sinister, and that's about it. Yeah, there's not much going on with the Zygons in that, and yeah. and their their backstory doesn't add up. No, but you kind of get away with it by being such a great story. Yeah, mm-hmm. but. But yeah, again, Zygons is another example of Stephen Moffat. And he didn't introduce this. Stephen Moffat, I mean, Russell T. Davis started this with the Slitheine. Mm. In fact, even before the Slitheine, the, the, the meanie in the end of the world mm. is the last surviving human being, right? Mm. Yeah. So right from the very start, the new series has been demonstrating that it's not going to be just generic races of baddies anymore. Mm. No. But that we're going to be treating these species in the same way we treat human beings mm-hmm. we should talk a bit more about the snowmen really the doctor's depressed because uh amy and rory have uh, been snatched away from him and he's got the tardis at the top of a spiral staircase in victorian london yeah uh, i thought that was gorgeous yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. and yeah. that whole se- the whole scene on top of the cloud mm. i think that's that's the sort of scene that gets repeated in about 10 years time as as a retrospective of what Stephen Moffat style Doctor Who can do, the magic, and it's Ma- yeah. and it's Michael Pickwood. Yes, that's his first story as well. No, his first story no. was a Christmas Carol. Was it okay? Yeah, but you can see. Oh, you can see what he's doing. Fir- it's his first go at a doctor. It's a at a console room. Is that what I'm thinking? Yes, it's the new mm. console room. That's right. Yeah. And that, even that, just the introduction of that, was really beautiful. It's nicely done. It's a story filled with beautiful moments mm. that, in spite of the fact that it goes on to have a whole half a series that works as a kind of sequel to it, mm. doesn't really add up to more than some of its parts. Yeah, I don't. It's Stephen Moffat has this habit of doing stories that say something about Doctor Who, mm. sometimes explicitly, like um, Clara's speech at the end of the time of the Doctor, and sometimes, like in the day of the Doctor where it's sort of implicit throughout the entire story that this is a story about what Doctor Who is and what Doctor Who does. And The Snowman is one of those occasions where he's content to tell a story that just is a story, Mm. really. And it just kind of treads water a bit. So I think it's a lovely episode, but it's kind of, apart from maybe the Doctor who we're doing the wardrobe, perhaps the most inessential of these specials. Treads frozen water. (laughs) Yeah. It's possibly why I like it. Maybe I like the inconsequential ones, but I also like the ones that are like glue holding the series together. So I'm, I'm, you know, contrary. No, I don't think it's contrary. I think you can like Doctor Who in two different ways, and this yeah. explains why I like Series Six so much. Mm. Is that I really love the five Moffat episodes that add up to a story, but I also really love the episodes in between that don't. 
and those you can treat as discrete entities, whereas the five episodes that Moffat wrote, you have to treat as a five-part story. Mm. And I really like the way that works, the two things happening at the same time, but in contrast to one another. Yeah, It's two entirely different styles of Doctor Who happening mm. at the same time. Yeah. Um, let's do the story that came in third. Okay. Well, we've only got three left now, and I think it's pretty obvious the way this is going to go. be last Christmas. No? Yeah, it is. Okay. I really like it. Yeah. Uh, it's a small, tight story. Yeah. For once. Yeah. And I think that's what was probably needed at that point. It The one thing it does that goes above and beyond it just being a base under siege story, apart from the sort of Christopher Nolan thing, mm. but the one thing it does is it says something about the Doctor and about where he needs to be and about what he needs to be. Because series eight ends with Peter Capaldi doing the I know what I am, I'm an idiot with a box Mm. speech, which is where Peter Capaldi, having had a regeneration crisis, a regeneration cycle crisis, finally stands back and says, right, I've just got to get back to being the Doctor. Mm. And this is the point at which he gets back to being the Doctor. So although you've still got all the ticks and things that made him what he was where he's rude to people and forgets people the instant he doesn't need to remember them anymore all this kind of stuff actually it's the scene at the end where he's on the sleigh enjoying himself because mm. he's enjoying himself because he's just won an adventure yeah. and it's like last christmas is the christmas episode or sorry last christmas is the episode that gets peter capaldi back to being the doctor Mm-hmm. But I mean, aside from that, the two other things about it are the scary story aspect. Mm-hmm. That's great. And the Christopher Nolan aspect. Mm. The, uh, what's the film called? It escapes me. Inception. Inception aspect. Yeah. Which, of course, has probably been done about a dozen times. Yeah. But to do it on a Christmas Day episode for a Christmas Day audience. It's mm. quite a brave move. Mm. So it's like uh, it's like Alien crossed with Inception, mm. but on Doctor Who on Christmas Day. Yeah. It's pretty dark. <laughs> it's pretty dark and it's pretty brave to expect a Christmas Day audience to be mm. able to... Obviously, the fans are going to be watching it intently, but, you know, that's only a fraction of the audience. The rest yeah. of the audience... Potentially, he's going to be sitting there bleary-eyed wondering what the hell is going on. <laughs> it's also another one of these stories where there's a character who could quite easily have come back as a companion at some point. Well, I was going to say, that's probably one of my favourite scenes ever in mm. Doctor Who is the bit where she's dancing through Yeah, her. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Oh, it's just so good. So beautifully... I don't know. Mm. Just the whole tone of it is just really good. Yeah. I tell you what's really nice about Last Christmas is when you watch it back and you see all the little hints and clues before you find out what's going on because he drops in you know lots of things in the dialogue that are sort of slightly ambiguous but when you watch it back and you realize and you know what's going on before the reveal of what's going on mm. you kind of see the ambiguity in all these things mm. like the fact that she's dancing into the room mm. it's just ridiculous mm. And it's like the doctor turns up and says, this is ridiculous, it's not real, or whatever. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not exactly like that in the dialogue. No. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then suddenly when you watch it again, you think, whatever the line of dialogue is, 
oh, he's nailed it already. He just doesn't know he's nailed it yet. Mm. Yeah. Because mm. obviously that doesn't happen. Mm. Like, so nothing else in that episode really happens. You get to the end of the episode and almost nothing in it has happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's a great story. Nobody's mm-hmm. mm. throwing me anything yet. Well, it's, uh, I mean, it's... Uh, Strangely... I want, I want to talk about David Doctor. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, I was going to say, I, I relate it in my head to Waters of Mars for some reason. I think it's that horror <clears> aspect. See, I was, I was relating it to um, uh, Under the Sea. Under the Sea, under the lake. Mm. Below the lake. Mm. Uh, so it is that. It does have that. There's a sort of a fetish of base under siege stories, which I always think is a bit false. Mm. Because everybody talks about base under siege stories being the, sort of the, the pinnacle of Doctor Who, but it's really all they're saying is cheap stories with limited, set, with limited yeah. sets <laughs> where they don't go outside. Mm. Base under siege, and the word is in the name, it's the lowest common baseline that you can get away with in Doctor yeah. Who, really. But also, I think this and um, quite a lot of the other, the other Stephen Moffat Christmas episodes are very interior. If yeah, you think yeah, about yeah. it, there's very little location location shooting for them. So even time of the Doctor, well, he feels I think, interior. I think what Stephen Moffat's been doing throughout his time as the showrunner is looking at all the things that Russell T Davis did before him mm. and saying where were the mistakes, even if they're not recognisable as mistakes. He's saying what are the things that potentially could have been done another way to improve yeah. things. And one of the things he looked at was the fact that Russell T. Davis always filmed the Christmas special in July with loads of location work. Yeah. So you've got these ridiculous scenes in The Runaway Bride and in um, Christmas Invasion of mm. Christmas Day happening on the hottest, sunniest day of the year. But also Stephen Moffat's also, he's he's doing a lot more indoors in studio, but that's allowing him... The extra when he does use to location. go abroad, yeah, yeah. So suddenly we're going to America and Lanzarote every year and Spain, so it's quite a <coughs> and Croatia. So this is this is the so everything stops looking like some streets in Cardiff. I think that's yeah, what yeah. that's what Stephen Moffat's doing, and that's what I felt with Russell T Davis is everything set in London that looks a bit like Cardiff, and that never connected with me because I don't live in London, I didn't grow up in London. And I certainly don't live in Cardiff. I don't live in Cardiff. So it was that was sort of alien to me. Whereas if you're going to be outdoors, mm. you might as well, in that case, go to Lanzarote or Spain or America and just go for it. There's always been a case of needs must with Doctor Who, though, hasn't it? Mm. And it's a case of you've got to wait till somebody comes along who says, can we change things and do it differently? Yeah, It's one of those things, it's like an idea that you can't have the idea before the ideas come along. Somebody's got to do it one way before yeah. somebody can say, well, is there another way? Yeah. But these Christmas specials, they they all feel very interior. And um, the next one we're going to talk about feels very interior. It's entirely indoors. And I, can't, I think I can't decide if I like that because that feels sort of intimate and cosy on Christmas. More so than something like The Runaway Bride, as you say, where they stand on the top of the building in the middle of the sunshine. And yeah, or or the uh, the Christmas Invasion, which has a lot of stuff, or the Runaway. Yeah. Well, if we go back to what we were talking about last week with regards to what a Christmas story is all about. Yeah. And I, and you know, I've said this many times now, and I said it last week. It's about a journey, mm. and it's about a journey where at the end of it, there's kind of a betterment. Mm. But one of the 
main things about Christmas outside of the religious meaning is also about a journey because Christmas is the time when families come back together to see each other often families that only see each other once a year yeah it's like the son or the daughter is away at university mm. the only day of the year that you can guarantee you'll see them is Christmas day yeah and so another one of these things that Stephen Moffat does mm. that Rossity Davis didn't do is have a coming together of characters. Yeah. We'll talk about this when it comes oddly, to Christmas Carol. Oddly, what I was saying last week as well was the other thing about Christmas is it's a time when we bring the outside inside with trees inside. So we start we start trying to deny the fact that it's cold and miserable outside by having evergreen trees inside that don't go, hopefully don't go off. And we put baubles <laughs> on that look like fruit. So we're trying to fake spring inside to defy what's happening outside and that's kind of what, what Stephen Moffat's doing he's producing these these Christmas specials that are interior that are sort of enclosed and cozy but also a kind of well last they're, Christmas they're kind of fixed as well mm. so uh, so time of the doctor is set on a planet where it's permanently snowy and also um, the, the, the well, yeah, that's the it. Of He's got two things on the planet where things are always snowy. You've got two things going on. You've got on the one hand things like Last Christmas and A Christmas Carol, which mm. are almost entirely indoor stories. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you've got things like The Snowmen and Time of the Doctor, mm. where the fact that it's Christmas outside is actually an element in the plot. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got things like The Snowmen and the mm. Mm. ice. Uh, governess yes. and you've got things like the planet christmas yeah <coughs> and watch and watching actors in a studio and you know it's in the studio you know time the doctor is filmed in the studio because it looks it has that slight feeling of studio-ness mm -hmm. and that kind of feels like the actors are doing a nativity scene or, or it nativity you as well. it feels like it feels very stagey it's, and that's that works at christmas yeah, i no, think exactly. that works mm. well, it reminds mm. you of things like white christmas and yeah. um yeah. capra and so instead like of instead of russell t davis going for the big budget movie disaster film spectac spectacular stephen moffat doesn't do that he goes for something slightly smaller slightly slightly mm. more sort of hunkered around a fire indoors i think and yeah. last christmas yeah. Is an example of that. And uses the smaller story as a metaphor for a bigger picture, mm. which mm. is kind of Stephen Moffat. Uh, you know, people have said this often enough in the past seven years. Stephen Moffat very often writes stories just about the central characters. Mm. And I think that's one of the main criticisms of Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who is that instead of Doctor Who being about something else that happens to feature the Doctor who turns up and deals with the something else, as often as not in Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who, it's actually about the companion or it's about the Doctor. And it's a time of the Doctor is a story that's about the Doctor. Day of the Doctor is a story that's about the Doctor. Mm. The Snowman is a story that's about the companion. You know, Girl Who Waited is all about Amy. You get yeah. lots of stories that are about the small, intimate main cast. But Stephen Moffat uses those stories to tell something in the form of illusion or allegory or metaphor or symbolism, something that represents something about the programme. Mm. Uh, it's something that a lot of fans don't like and it's something that will stop happening when Stephen Moffat stops doing Doctor Who because it's 
it's what Stephen Moffat does. You look at his Jekyll, you look at his Sherlock, you look at Coupling. They're all the same. Hmm. They all de- deal with the issues that the program's dealing with by talking about the issues that the program's dealing with through an intimate character piece between a certain set of main characters rather than a wider story in which those characters are just a part of the plot. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about number two? Yes. Well, the story that came in second, of course, is A Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, if this was just the Christmas specials, it would be my absolute favourite if The Day of the Doctor wasn't in the mix. I just think it's a gorgeous story. I think the clever thing about it is that Stephen Moffat takes the sort of fundamental basics of the plot of the original and actually pays homage to it in a brilliant and unexpected way. A Christmas Carol is the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, a ghost of Christmas future. Mm. And in Stephen Moffat's A Christmas Carol, he has the Doctor become all these things in a timey-wimey way, so that he actually sort of ticks all the boxes of what a Christmas carol does, but does it in a sort of generic time-travel paradox Doctor Who plot, yeah. where these characters, rather than having external ghosts coming and telling Sardic about various things, he's actually got the Doctor going and doing and showing him all these things instead. Yeah. So it it keeps the emotional beats of Mm. Mm. Dickens' story, but actually makes it a lot more personal and a lot more real. It really is. It's a clever thing, because if you think about it, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, Christmas Carol is, apart from the obvious story, is the ultimate Christmas story. It's become really... Well, it's ingrained in Christmas. Absolutely, yeah. So you don't mess with that. But what he's actually done is done this thing where other shows would have somebody get knocked on the head and they go, they pass out and they have a dream. Yeah. And you get all the characters acting out a story that everyone knows. But but it's doing it in a way that... I mean, it's such a perfect source for a Doctor Who story because it is about ghosts and time travel. Mm. Which, and I've been thinking in previous Christmas, so I thought at the end of time, every time that the Christmas special is starting to be talked about, before a Christmas Carol, I thought, oh, this is this is the one they're going to do the Dickens for this. So end of time, I thought, I bet you, I bet you they're going to draw on Dickens for this. I bet you that because it's such an obvious source, mm. and then they they come up with a story called a Christmas Carol and sort of blow do that it. out. Obviously, they're going to do it for that one. I'm really glad he didn't do was to bring back um, ah name disappeared as soon as I tried to think of it. Cool. Who Makes played it. Charles Dickens? This. Oh, um, um, Simon Callow. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we didn't bring him been, back for that. Yeah. Thing. yeah. Him back for... Well, the thing about the Christmas Carol is it's such a, it's such a kind of because it's it's not really a Dickens story anymore. Mm. So it's nothing about it's become such a kind of an abstracted, kind of symbolic. Well, whatever story. you see of a Christmas because ca- the thing about Dickens is more than the plot, Dickens is about the language he uses, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And of course, any version of A Christmas Carol that's not the short story Mm. isn't going to have that language. Yeah. So instead, you get Dickens' plot beats, which are fairly simple, really. But also, with A Christmas Carol, it's different from any other... So Dickens' stories tend to be rambling. They tend Mm. to be... They tend to be kind of picaresque kind of journeys. A Christmas Carol is... It's almost like setting the template 
for a new structure of story, a new type of story, which has been repeated again <clears> and again. But this was the first that did it. This this examination of a man's life through past, present, and future mm. that then repairs the man. That's something that's that's been repeated, even if it's not an adaptation of a Christmas Carol, mm. or even if it doesn't like it's explicitly pay homage to mm. it. It's, well, it's a classic story, but it's a structure. It's a new structure. It's um. Uh, oh God! What's the Frank Capra Christmas? It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, it's a Wonderful yeah. Life. Is yeah. Christmas yeah. Carol? Yes, exactly. Yeah, everything. Yeah, I do, but I like it's a one. See, I think Dickens' A Christmas Carol ain't all that. By which I mean it is all that. But I think because it's been adapted and repeated so many times. It's kind of now got this mystique about it <laughs> that actually the short story itself probably doesn't quite deserve. Well, no. Because it is a bit of a rambling short story. Yeah, and all of Dickens doesn't quite... I mean... Yeah, yeah. It's, it's great. the effect it has on the reader as opposed to the story itself, yeah. isn't it? Mm. it is... I mean, it's great. it was great at the time and a lot of the longer stuff was great in instalments. So something like Oliver Twist is really cool in installments with cliffhangers and everything. But to as actually a, sit down coherent, and read it, yeah. which, which I've done... It's clunky and it's it's kind of overly sentiment, sentimental. How would I read it in installments? Just tell me. In an it's, it's released in a it's released in magazine form, like Sherlock Holmes short stories. Yes, no, I understand that. But oh. how would I now look at it in, in the installment? You read it chapter by chapter. Oh, the chapter is actually yeah, yeah, installment. Yeah. Okay, and you can see That's that cool. you can see that he's writing the chapter and he gets halfway through the book and realizes that Fagin, that Fagin's a really popular character. Mm. So suddenly the story becomes about ah, Fagin. Wow. So he can change the story depending on what the viewers are liking, which is what Doctor Who does as well. So only reason I ask is because I feel like it's a story I should love, but it's never captured my. It's less lovable than you might imagine. Mm. Sometimes the adaptations, JR was saying, sometimes the adaptations are better. And with a Christmas Carol, the best thing about the Christmas Carol is the fact that it's inspired Mm. a particular type of story, and has become symbolic of Christmas. I just think it's interesting the amount of people who say. And I'm just saying this for laughs. The amount of people that say Muppets Christmas Carol was their yeah, favorite yeah. version, yeah, because it, yeah, yeah. Well, what you do is you take their essence and distill what it is that works about mm. it. Mm. And, and this is what any adaptation should do: it should take the things that works and get rid of the stuff that doesn't. And any story by any writer, no matter how well regarded that writer if it's the first version of something, it's always going to have bits that don't work. So the more you redo the story, mm. the more people are going to find the bits that do work and forget the bits that don't. Mm. And also this this story, this Doctor Who story, further exposes the differences between Stephen Moffat's approach to Christmas from Russell T. Yeah. Davis. So Russell T. Davis's approach to Christmas is Christmas shopping, Christmas trees, baubles. It's superficial, it's commercial. Stephen Moffat's approach is to look at the Christmas Carol, which is, I mean, at Christmas you go home to the family and you're surrounded by three different generations, three or more different generations of your family. That's what a Christmas Carol is about. It's about sitting in a room with With the past, present and future in the same room. It makes me think of is you think about some of the best movies and the best TV that involves Christmas. It's stuff like Gremlins. Hmm. And oh, I don't know what else. Other st- <laughs> just other stuff that's set at Christmas, and you yeah. suddenly think, Die Hard. It's a bit, yeah, it's a bit odd that it's set at Christmas. Yeah, because it's yeah. not necessarily integral to the plot. No, yes. it is. Well, yeah, because it's that period. Yeah. Of Whereas something reflection. like the end of time, the Doctor Who story, the end of time, it's not. 
in Tarkovsky's plot, they just put a Christmas tree up in yeah. part of the story. Mm. Have and you seen Arthur Christmas? Yes. I hope the kids were only watching it yesterday. That's a nice one. It is. Yeah. That does the generation Quite how he catches thing. a sleigh when it's running at 45,000 miles an hour. I have no idea, but yeah. Well, but the, the in Arthur Christmas, which is hard <laughs> man, but mm. it's... Um, CGI. CGI as right. opposed to uh, claymation. Yes. But it it's about... Father Christmas is a title that's passed down from generation to generation. Right. So in Arthur Christmas, Arthur is the young boy who's going to be the next Father Christmas. Mm-hmm. His dad is a bit of a buffoon. So his uncle is actually doing the Christmas thing because there's like this big operation for Christmas. And you've also got the retired granddad who was Father Christmas before he passed it on to the buffoon. Mm. So the uncle, I think if I'm getting or is this it right, the older brother? I think it's the older brother, Steve. Oh, is it older brother? Right, yeah. older brother wants to inherit the title of Father Christmas and, of course, Arthur's the one who saves Christmas Day. Right. So, but it's got the generational yeah. thing again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, old, the older brother is using all modern techniques to streamline yeah. it and say, I'm going to be the best. Father Christmas right. ever and all that sort of thing. Meanwhile, <clears throat> Arthur, the younger, is obviously... He's got the magic and he actually is... Yeah, and he, and he so. believes and... Oddly often in America, the best Christmas stories are set in November because Thanksgiving is the time when people mm-hmm. get together with the family. So if Dickens had been American, he might very well have set... A Thanksgiving carol. Yeah, a Thanksgiving <laughs> carol. It's interesting, I heard that the other day. Um, Jingle Bells isn't a Christmas song. It's a Thanksgiving song. Originally. Okay, yeah. I heard different lyrics to Jingle Bells. Mm. I think that was Russia. I think I was listening. I was. I <laughs> might have been watching some sort of Russian film, right? Which I do on occasion. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I liked. Yeah, I liked the Christmas Carol. It's also Christmas a love story, which is unusual in Doctor Who, mm-hmm. but it's one that really works. You don't get that very often. No. In Doctor Who, and yeah, here he is, Stephen Moffat. It's his first Christmas special. And he's gone to town on doing unexpected things, really. Yeah, it's a fairy tale, isn't it? So it's Sleeping Beauty crossed with a Christmas card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it re- but that really works. It's yeah. really beautiful and yeah. it's really poignant and it really hits home at the end of the episode. I think it's one of Stephen Moffat's and one of Doctor Who's very best ever stories, actually. Okay. I need to watch it again. It's been so long. Mm. Oh, I watched it last year and I was just absolutely blown away again. Mm. it's one that gets better every time you watch it I haven't watched it since it was on well <laughs> you've got no soul <laughs> I've, got, I've got no DVD <laughs> oh really yeah. perhaps you should rectify that um, and Catherine Jenkins is actually quite good isn't it? Yeah, so. yeah yeah and she sings the song I don't know why I end. say that sounds really patronising I don't mean that you just assume if somebody's not an actress you like you, really you have to make allowances for them, but you don't really have to. Whether it's a... Well, she sings a song at the end, which again is like Stephen Moffat saying, right, you got Kylie in your Christmas special, but mm. you couldn't get her to sing a song. I'm getting Catherine Jenkins in mine, and guess what? She's singing. It's almost sometimes, almost it feels like he's thumbing his nose at Russell T. Davis and saying, all the things you couldn't do, I'm <laughs> just going to go ahead and do. Because Catherine Jenkins isn't nearly as big a name as Kylie Minogue. Mm. So you didn't have the... Uh, agents hurdles to jump over which is presumably what nixed any idea of kylie singing in voyage of the damned otherwise i've no doubt that russell t davis would have had her on stage doing karaoke or something at some point in that episode she would have, wouldn't she if she could have yeah but this is all about Probably agents the and company, fees then who was she with <clears throat> they would they would have been 
checks to sign yeah. and uh, things like that. Yeah. It wouldn't have happened. Anything else about Christmas Carol? Or we move on. Okay, we we'll move on to the un-Christmassy one. Oh, oh. oh sorry, sharks. Yes. Mm. Are they there just as a throwaway thing, or is there a reason behind it? I was thinking that. And I, I initially thought the only thing I didn't like were the flying fish, but then I'm thinking back, and actually I quite like the flying fish. Yeah. I think the big shark moment was sort of slightly disjointedly comedic, mm. but maybe it needed that, needed that. I mean, there's something so ridiculous about about the fish. Maybe that's the, sh- the edge. That's yeah, the edge yeah. to make it. Yeah. The shark moment at the end is a bit like, I don't know, at the end of, say, something like Independence Day, where you'll always have a scene right at the end of the film where everybody's cheering. Yeah. The shark moment at the end of A Christmas Carol and the sleigh moment at the end of Last Christmas are a bit like those bits in American films where mm-hmm. you've got a little coda where everything's right with the world yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, it's slightly clunky, but don't spoil it. Hmm. Because it's a shark. Yes. Basically. Yeah, the sharks are great. The The whole thing with the fish is like, he's saying, well, there's this thing in there, this is the Michael Pickwood thing. Right. He puts portholes instead of windows in all the buildings. Yeah. Yeah, which is a beautiful yeah. design choice. Yeah. But the design choice comes out of the story because it's set on a planet where the atmosphere is dense enough that fish can fly. Michael Pickford is really old school. I was watching uh, With Nan and I last night, or two nights ago, for about the 20th time in, <laughs> in 20 years. And I was looking at the sets for the first time and how they sort of contribute, because it's the same, he, did, he mm. designed it. And yeah, you realise how sort of versatile and how much how much that kind of that kind of seedy end of the sixties look is brought through that kitchen. Everything. The kitchen, but also like yeah, the cottage mm. and oh yeah. <laughs> but to go from that to, to to this, where you can tell it's just, he's just a designer having a really, really fun time and just going for it. But I really, and this is one thing, that, another thing that changed with Stephen Moffat is that he, Russell T. Davis always had the same director of photography, mm. which was, I can't even remember his name, but he was very good, but they developed a house style. And I think Stephen Moffat's moved away from the idea of having a house style. So Stephen Moffat seems to have a style for a series, yeah, and then it will change again. So you will get a variety of DPs, and you'll get Michael Pickwood. Hmm. Michael Pickwood, like Stephen Moffat and like the DPs, seems to reset every year. Yeah. So series six looks and feels and moves very differently from series five. Yeah. And then series seven looks and feels and moves very differently again from series six. Yeah. And this happens every year. Whereas in Russell T. Davis, the four series yeah. all looked and felt of a piece with one another. And Doctor Who should be changing. Yeah. It usually did change every year. I mean, this is the... And to bring it back to point, the Christmas specials are an opportunity for everybody to say, right, this is one apart. And like you say, with Michael Pickwood having fun, although that was his very first episode of Doctor Who, he didn't carry any of that over into the following season. Everybody seems to be saying, on Last Christmas and on The Snowmen and on Time of the Doctor and on everything else, 
let's do this one differently. Mm. And that's why you get, going back to Time of the Doctor, an episode that feels completely different from everything else that's around it. Do you know, it's really, it's it's interesting, Every almost every year I end up doing a Christmas-themed Doctor Who illustration, and I think of the Moffat episodes as pretty much what I would do if if I was talented enough to do like an oil painting. Because I always imagined what I'd really like to do is one of those, do you remember when you were at school and you, you got your box of cards to give to all your friends? And you'd give your favourite friends the funny ones, the mm. ones that had Santa on and mm. lovely. And then you'd always be left over with these chocolate box ones. Right. Like the nighttime <clears throat> scenes with all, and they're all, now you realise they're beautifully painted. And mm. But what I would always have is in the distance is the little TARDIS with glowing yellow windows mm. yeah. in amongst that. And those are the Stephen Moffat Christmas episodes. Yeah. Well, he does that absolutely explicitly on screen in mm. A Christmas Carol, doesn't he? Yeah. Where he has the projecting film on the wall and yeah. all of a sudden the Doctor turns up in it. So it's Doctor Who within Christmas as opposed to just a Christmas yeah. Doctor Who yeah. setting. And none of these things are accidental. No. Everybody who's working on this, and this is why the Doctor, the, doctor, the Widow and the Wardrobe was such a disappointment the following year, because mm. he didn't have any of this stuff. Mm. Christmas Carol tells a beautiful story and it also tells a metatextual story and it also tells a story that's homaging something else so that it's got multiple layers and then it's got like cameos from like Laurel and Hardy and Marilyn Monroe and what have you it's just a beautiful smorgasbord of all sorts of different influences <laughs> coming together in this perfect confluence I really want to watch it again now I might do it actually <laughs> it's, time. No, it's not be, too late <laughs> I will be watching it tonight let's talk about the day of the doctor then okay well well, here's the interesting thing from last week that Simon won't be aware of yet. Last week, we did the seven Russell T. Davis specials, of which five are Christmas specials and two are not, The mm. Waters of Mars and Planet of the Dead. Planet of the Dead came bottom, Waters of Mars came top, and all the Christmas specials were bunched in between. Well, this week, we've got one special that's not a Christmas special, and again, it's come top. Mm. I don't know what that really says... I think in this case it's probably it's probably not connected with it. It's just because it's, it's Day of the Doctor, it? and it's yeah. But it's it's a bit of a coincidence that it's happened on both occasions that a non-Christmas special has won the poll. Yeah, and I, if it says anything, I think the one thing it says is that when you're doing a Christmas special, you are tied in in a to a certain degree to doing a particular specific thing. Now, whether it's Ross T. Davis with his commercial movies, or whether it's Stephen Moffat with his Christmas stories, because Stephen Moffat's doing six of those and Russell T. Davis is doing five of them, although some are going to be better than others, none of them are going to stand out to the extent that they're going to win a poll where there's something else that's also standing out, mm. because that thing's going to stand out even more because of the fact that it also doesn't do that thing. Yeah. The Day of the Doctor was probably, in the entire 50 years of Doctor Who, the most difficult story to get to screen, insofar as it was the one story, much more so than the five Doctors, mm. that had all that anticipation. Yeah, it's not like right you can now. think, oh, it's all right, we can do this again in 10 years. It's yeah. not even that, is it? No. Well, when they did the five Doctors, they were like, oh, let's have a bit of a hoo-ha for Doctor Who's 20th. But nobody 
Nobody really thought any more of it than that. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So the TV movie was probably the hardest story to bring to screen. Or, mm. Ro- or Rose. <clears throat> oh, no, no, no. I didn't but, mean yeah, in, in terms, terms of, writing, of production. Yeah. I meant yeah. in terms of the anticipation. Okay. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because in spite of Rose and the TV movie having a weight of anticipation, mm. they both had... That, that anticipation well, was ameliorated by the fact that people hoped and thought there was going to be more afterwards in case of Rose they well, knew there would be also expectations were low for, relatively low for both of them by the time Day of the Doctor came out Doctor Who was big Mining. again yeah so they had to do something big for a series that was already big for Rose they all they had to do was not screw up and just just give, you, some, keep give going. you something that you wanted to see the next one the TV movie they had to do something that would attract viewers who so weren't a bit more. Yeah. yeah. Well, the TV movies are a different conversation. Yeah. The Day of the Doctor. The thing about the Three Doctors was, because that wasn't an anniversary special, but it was an anniversary special. Mm. It was like, this is the 10th series of Doctor Who, so mm. let's kick it off with something different. Mm. Yeah. So let's do what people have been talking about and bring the first two Doctors back. The thing about that, that's amazingly prescient, but accidentally so, is that they give it to Bob Baker and Dave Martin, who've got no idea of the history of the programme at this point. And in fact, nobody really has, because it's only 10 years old. Mm. And it's been like this, for most of that 10 years, it's been like this B-movie series that's not really meant a lot to anybody in the way it does now. So Bob Baker and Dave Martin just write this story, but accidentally write a story about something that's fundamental to the series without even realising that that's what they were doing. And they introduce a Time Lord who nobody would ever heard of further to that point Mm. and give him a story about something that was fundamental in the creation of the society that the Doctor comes from and that is so dramatic that it could, if not solved, result in the end of the series because it would result in the end of the universe. Mm. So Bob Baker and Dave Martin accidentally write this story that's about Doctor Who mm-hmm. without even really realising it, especially as most of those dots weren't joined until afterwards anyway. With the five Doctors, Terence Dix does that again. The reason he does that again is because he was around for the three Doctors and I don't think he does it ostentatiously. I think he just kind of fishes around for an idea and says, well, I'll just kind of reuse what Bob Baker and Dave Martin did. Mm. So, he, And actually, the plot of the five Doctors is great. I really like it, where mm. all the incarnations of the Doctor come to this playing field where it's kind of a war games type of a thing, mm-hmm. where they have to go on this quest to this castle. It's a bit like a video game, isn't it, really? But basically, Five Doctors is about somebody who's at the heart of Time Lord Society, changing things in such a way that the universe is in peril again. Mm-hmm. And the Doctor Who universe is in peril, because all of the past is there and can be written out, as it were. Stephen Moffat, comes to the Christmas special 30 years after that. And he's got all this anticipation riding on it because of how successful Doctor Who's been. Mm. And he's... There are so many different things he could do. 
like he could have all the doctors in there somehow. Mm. And actually, in the end, he does get all the doctors in there somehow. Yeah. So nobody can really be disappointed by that. But what he really needs to do when he sits down to write the Day of the Doctor is take what's underwritten Doctor Who to this point and write a story that says something about that. Mm. So the thing that underpins the most successful and popular Doctor, David Tennant, we talked last week about the fact that he's a romantic hero while Rose is there, but really what underpins the romantic hero aspect is, and probably this is what really sold it to an audience, is that here's a guy who's fallen in love, but balanced against that is the fact that he's lost something really, really important. And what he's lost is his people. Mm. And of course, we subsequently find out that he's the man who killed his people. So if Stephen Moffat's going to address something, then he has to address the thing that made David Tennant the romantic hero with the already broken heart who's getting it fixed in the series by addressing the thing that's broken that heart. Which is a roundabout way of saying, once again, he then turns around and thumbs his nose at Russell T. Davis. (laughs) Because he takes all the things that Russell T. Davis did to make Doctor Who this ridiculously big success for the noughties, for a generation that previously had never had anything to do with Doctor Who, the sort of teenage generation, he turns all of that on its head and literally changes everything that Russell T. Davis has done, but in a stroke of absolute genius, leaves it all to stand as well. So the emotional resonance of everything... Mm -hmm. It's like what you were saying earlier about, I can't remember which one you were talking about, you said something earlier about, oh, the Sontarans. You said, does having comedy Sontarans undermine yeah. the Sontaran stratagem? Because you can't go back and watch that now without seeing comedy Sontarans. Well, this, this is always... <laughs> well, the is, thing, just to finish yeah. the point, the thing about this is, you watch the Day of the Doctor, that should undermine the end of time. Yeah. And Gridlock, and all the other stories where David Tennant talks about how broken he is because of the time war, but it doesn't. Mm. I mean, this was always... At the time, this was the one the one complaint that I heard coming from people was that it had reversed the time war, and the so so it's completely destroyed all these previous stories. But actually, obviously, it doesn't destroy the previous no, stories. No. All it does is bring the story of the time war to, to a an conclusion, and then restarts it as a story of the hunt for the time lords. So they discover that the time lords aren't destroyed; they're actually just hidden in a pocket universe. So suddenly you've got a new mm. a new story. And it's a more progressive story as well. So instead of a story that builds up a tragic ca- character that ultimately you can't do anything with, you can just reach the you ultimate tragedy. You might as well argue tragedy. that Back to the Future Part 3 rewrites Back to the Future yeah, Part 1. Yeah. Yeah, but it's also yeah. shifting, it's shifting from a story that's a story of despair to mm. a story where it's a story of hope. Um, an optimism. Yeah, it changes that's, something that's about pessimism yeah. to something that's about optimism. And whether that's thumbing a nose, thumbing his nose at Russell T. Davis, or just good storytelling, it's just it's well, just telling the. New do you know chapter. what it reminds me? It reminds me of though is I what I love in comics is where you get an old character, and and the, the best ones are like what's happened with Guardians of the <clears> Galaxies, <throat> where they've taken old characters and done something completely new, where they've reshaped them and. And kind of taken the best traits, but said, well, if that person was like that, then 
what would they really be like? So you end mm. up getting this really three-dimensional character is what Stephen Moffat does to the Tenth Doctor. Mm. Is he takes him and, and he says, yeah, actually he is a bit of a, I don't know what the word is. Jack the Lad? Jack the Lad, maybe, yeah. Mm. And, you know, you know, realises that. So all of a sudden the Tenth Doctor becomes really quite edgy. Well, he becomes Casanova. Yeah. Which is apt, considering David. Uh, yeah, David absolutely. I mean, there was, yeah. a, there was a hints of that, weren't there, mm. in... Um, in his time, but um, I, I love that when you get a new writer. But equally, that doesn't, you know, even though you read a new Captain America comic, mm. and you know, and he's got all these foibles and and all this um, Hail Hydra, all that stuff, yeah. yeah. But you can still go back to the old comics because you read them yeah. in the style they were written, and you mm. think, well, that's that was the sentiment then. Yeah. So the same thing's happening again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that same. It's a reboot. Yeah. Yeah. What I quite like about it is it follows in the tradition of of being a multi-doctor story where you haven't quite got all the doctors you've been promised. <laughs> but actually, that's exactly what the three doctors... Yeah. You don't have the first doctor. The five doctors, it's four doctors, one of whom yeah. isn't the original. So it's effectively... So the five doctors is the three yeah, doctors. Yeah, so the two doctors is only the... The, the two only doctors, mul- yeah. The only multi-doctor the story that actually yeah. does what it says on the tin. Whereas this, it kind of plays with that by giving you an extra doctor you didn't know existed, mm. bringing back an old doctor in a different role mm. and having all the doctors at the end. So it's kind of taking the piss out of that, that sort of... There's a kind of a fake nostalgia for multi-doctor stories. They don't really work practically they work nostalgically and they make you excited but actually you can't they've never worked the only time they've actually done what they've said on the tin is the two doctors Mm. and it kind of didn't it kind of (laughs) didn't work because the second doctor wasn't the second doctor in the two doctors he was this he was this no real reason for them both to be there was there really no no he was a weird hybrid of Pertwee and something else (laughs) Because they'd forgotten how what he was. And I'll tell you the other thing about the Day of the Doctor as well, and about a lot of other Stephen Moffat stories, but particularly here, is that when you're really involved with something, you get a kind of blinkered vision about it. Mm. When you're really focused on something, you kind of lose sight of the bigger picture because you're concentrating so much on the thing you're focusing on. Mm. And the thing about Stephen Moffat's writing is, and the Day of the Doctor is the supreme example of this, he has the entire bigger picture at his disposal. This is a story that takes something that's... Because, I mean, it takes a certain kind of person to say, okay, that thing can be changed and here's how it can be changed, when you think that thing's set in stone. Most people would just think, well, it's set in stone, you can't touch it. But Stephen Moffat actually looks at it, says, I can take that thing and I can change it, and in changing it, I can say something about the programme as well. Because what the Day of the Doctor is really about, and again, it's more or less made explicit in dialogue by Clara at the end, is that the Doctor is not a person who commits genocide, but he's a person who stopped genocide. Hmm. And this is something we know. We've known this for 50 years, and it shouldn't come as a surprise. And yet, Russell T. Davis had written this entire storyline about turning the Doctor into somebody who could and would hmm. commit genocide. And then it takes somebody who's got his eye on the bigger picture to come along and say, well, actually, you can use that to turn that story into a story about somebody who wouldn't commit genocide, Mm. who'd find another way. Mm. And we've always said it. Doctor Who is about this guy who stumbles into a situation, doesn't know what's going on, spends three and a half episodes 
fishing around and finding out lots and lots of different things and then comes up with a clever solution at the end. And that is exactly what Day of the Doctor is. For 70 minutes, he stumbles around and then right at the end, Clara says, hey, you're the guy who comes up with a clever solution. And he says, oh, yes, we'll do this. <laughs> it's just it's, a, it's kind of so also it's the middle. It's the middle and middle of the, of the trilogy. trilogy. Yeah. And it reminds me a little bit of Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, mm. which, which I think mm. is so, which I think is is a really strong trio of movies where the central the central instalment is the strongest is the strongest instalment, and it does a similar thing. So it it does a similar thing with the character of Batman. Godfather does Part it, Two for does Godfather it slightly darker. Godfather Part Two is slightly different because it's a prequel and a sequel at the same time. So structure, but structurally, the Christopher Nolan Batman films are probably as close to this as you can get. And also, I mean, the third Batman I, film, it's sort of... I don't know how he came up with this, because it, it would make my brain hurt coming up with a story like this. Hmm. I just think it works on so many... It's like a big piece of beautiful clockwork machinery. I think the story is surprisingly, for me, is surprisingly simple. Mm. I, what I can't see understand is how he managed to adapt it to the changing circumstances, like Terence Dix with mm, the Five yeah. Doctors. But Terence Dix with the Five Doctors had the advantage of the fact that he'd created a storyline where he could yeah. just drop it deliberately. The I don't necessarily and, think those cogs are the, like the story. I just think it's the way everything fits together that it, it fits so many yeah. joyful things mm. emotionally mm. and tactically and the fact that it threads into the series yeah. as an episode. Mm. It's far more like an episode than really a special in some yes. respects, isn't yeah. it? It's almost like a peak. Well, it's a special and, a, and an episode. Which is what I was saying about the best Christmas specials are, are they feel like part of the series, mm. but they're special. And I, I've always thought that how, that's what I was saying, how can you have a Doctor Who special when they're putting everything into every episode? Mm. So when Moffat did that, his season seven, which was all, it was supposed to be a season of specials. Yeah. Each one is like a movie. Mm. How can you have a special after doing that? And to do that, you do something like Day of a Doctor, which is both a special and it's it's tied into the very sort of fabric of the series. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's this is how you do it. But you could also only do it really once in a blue once moon. in a blue moon mm. because he sort of shot the bolt with it. If he does it again, it stops being special. Did, sorry, I was just going to say what I did like, and I get the impression is it, it was the Doctor's birthday. Mm. It wasn't Fandom's birthday. Hmm. I know there was a nod with getting all the doctors in there at one point, but that that was as much making a point as anything else that he is made up of all these, yeah, personalities. And so you can so you have to see Day of the Doctor as part of that trilogy, but you also see it as part of a collection of programs, the anniversary programs. So you had adventure in space and time in space and time. Hmm. That's the celebration of the fabric of the series, the actual production of the series. Then you had the documentaries, which were a celebration of the fandom. You had the Matthew Sweet documentary. Mm. That was about fandom. Then you had this, which is a celebration of the character. Mm. So together. And then you had Web of Fear coming back, which is an actual celebration of Web of Fear and Power. Do you know what? Star Trek's 50th has happened this year, and I don't think anyone's even noticed. No, they're too busy trying to, I don't know, make new Star Trek. But Yeah, yeah, next year. But how lucky were we? Yeah. Really? Yeah. 
Yeah. The BBC does heritage well, mm. I think. That's the thing. It's got so many different... It's one institution with so many different strands that you can have docudramas, documentaries, and Doctor Who mm. all in the same year that tie together, that look at the different aspects of it. Mm. And, you know, you just use a word I was about to use. Was that? That's not how I use it anyway. And another aspect of the day of the Doctor that I don't think anybody ever really mentions is that it also, in spite of doing all the continuity things that it does, had to work for an audience of millions and millions and millions of people around the world who'd never seen Doctor Who before. Mm. And patently it worked. Mm. Now, uh, you'd think of it, looking at it, that it wouldn't work for people who weren't already acquainted with the programme. Mm. I think what it does, and this is, Stephen Moffat's very often the guy who doesn't spell things out. But I think what The Day of the Doctor does really well is not spell things out, but like Matt was saying just now, it makes the story really simple. Mm. So people can just enjoy this byplay between all these different characters and don't really need to understand who the characters are mm. as long as they're clued into a certain type of storytelling and as long as they understand that the fundamental thing that's happened and any country that's ever had a war can understand this mm. in a war there always needs to be a victor and a victor will often have some kind of a sacrifice along the way whether it's the people who died on the Somme yeah. or whatever there's always a victor and there's always a regret. And for an audience worldwide who'd never seen Doctor Who, all they really needed to understand was that this was immediately after a war and there was this big regret and they spelled out what the regret was and they fixed it. And they also, they, they did it. So there's, there's a parallel here with the beginning of the TV movie where he sort of has this voiceover that mm. slightly clunkily introduces you. It was on the planet Sky with Rebellion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And here's something else about me. Whereas here, you did get that moment in it, which was Matt Smith talking, uh, the 10th Doctor talking to Clara, the 11th Doctor talking to Clara about, I haven't had this face. Yeah, yeah I used yeah. to look different. But it's told in a, in a sequence that's, Within the so, narrative. that's so pretty yeah, and yeah. so sort of effective. Mm. And it was in 3D. 3D as well, which people... which I've still I never seen I it in 3D. No, I've never seen it in 3D. Mm. But I'd imagine it's pretty... It's supposed yeah. to be very impressive. Yeah. 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 Because it was filmed mm -hmm. properly yeah. in 3D. Yeah. And there mm. are elements of the story that are about it being in 3D as well. Mm. So the 3D mm. paintings. Mm. Yeah. So as soon as Stephen Moffat discovered that he could That's film it I mean. in 3D, just... he just injected the 3D paintings, paintings into it. Which is another mark of just how... Well, he does these things and just how yeah. much thought he I mean, puts And it's not just a case of ticking boxes, right. is it? It's not, oh, right, I've included that, I've included that. It all well, he was in, He was yeah, inspired yeah. by the format. So, well, this it's, is. It's kind of, he's a flexible. The, the, I think the real flexibility was dealing with actors who were going to be in it and weren't going to be in it and changing situations. Mm. But the actual fabric of the story. <clears> it's, it's a speciality. Rich. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. And it also the pacing of it, that it's allowed to take its time. Yeah. There's those moments of silence. Mm. Yeah. Isn't it's got a very quiet, slow... Uh, once you get past that very first scene with the helicopter, yeah. it's got a very quiet, slow start. And actually, yeah. the scene where the three Doctors get introduced is basically one scene that goes for about 15 minutes. Mm. It's just the three stooges. Yeah. The, yeah. 
No, it's lovely and it's a very, very special achievement. And I will contend because I think the things, the three things that it does is that it, it tells a story that stands the test of storytelling and it says something about the series which stands being told and it pays service to the fans by which I don't just mean the long-term fans but anybody who's a fan mm. is paid service as well in a way that doesn't undermine either of the two other two elements and I think in that way it landed up top of that Doctor Who magazine poll last time and I think it deserves that spot no, and I, I, I think and I hope it will keep that spot because I I genuinely think this probably is the best Doctor Who story there's ever been mm. because it it does answer everything that's ever been asked of a story. It just seems to operate on another level, really. Mm, it's astonishing. So. Well, it is. It's the Doctor Who movie that yes. we never had. And we won't get. I don't <clears> think. <throat> well, one day we'll get it. But this is... This is... I mean, you can imagine... Is it David Yates who does who directs yes, all the Harry Potters? He's the, Harry the guy Potters. that wanted to do Doctor Who. And now he's doing now the he's Harry Potter it, prequel thing. Which, which is Doctor Who. It's, oh, right. It's somebody who looks very similar to Matt Smith with a suitcase that's bigger on the inside than on the oh, outside. Really? And he's got a sonic screwdriver, but it's a wand, effectively. Okay. So David Yates <laughs> is doing Doctor Who. David Yates doing Day of the Doctor, that would be the Doctor Who movie. Mm -hmm. But it's, And it was. I mean, it was shown in the cinemas in 3D. All over the world. So we have had the, <laughs> Doctor Who the movie, and that's what it looked like. But you can't do it again. I, I think that's that's it. I think that's that's the one bad thing about Day of the Doctor, is it's so rich and so iconic that he's he's screwed us for specials. Well, it just needs another generation. Yeah, I think yeah. you could do it. I think you could do something on the sixtieth. Yeah, but I don't think you could be ambitious as ambitious in storytelling terms. No. But I think what you could perhaps be more ambitious is in nostalgic terms. Yeah. If you were to do a 60th special. Mm -hmm. So I think a 60th special would need to be a less dramatic story mm. in continuity terms. Yes. But a more involving story in terms of bringing back continuity elements. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So you'd, you'd have to do something different next time. And then by the time you get to the 75th, you're a generation away. So Day of the Doctor is old history in a way the Five Doctors was history when Day of the Doctor was made. Mm. Yeah. But I mean, well, here's a question then before we move on entirely, because this has kind of been talked about a little bit. Should Stephen Moffat do a story where Peter Capaldi meets Paul McGann's Doctor during the course of series 10 next year? Because, I mean, when Night no. of the Doctor came out, <laughs> mm. one of the things that Stephen Moffat said was, yeah, I'd love to bring Paul McGatton back for an episode, which I suppose would be the new series equivalent of The Two Doctors with Patrick Trout and Colin mm. Baker, where they just meet up in a story during the course of the series. You don't, Matt, you don't... I don't, I don't think so. I think, but I do think that, I do think there's a, there's a kind of a, a five-part mini-series shown on consecutive nights about potentially about the Paul McGann Doctor that's completely separate from the series. 
I don't I don't have a problem with there being two doctors on the go at once. Well, I so don't, which is why I would have been fine with David Yates making a movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, well, so so, so I wouldn't bring him back for one episode. I'd bring him back for something five, else. So but it wouldn't make be it two a bit doctors. more a bit more special. But keep no, I just bring him back on his own. Yeah, no. Because what I'm asking that's... specifically is: should yeah. there be a two doctors? No, I don't think so, Simon. Oh, I, my first question is: is where's the audience? I mean, yes, audience amongst fans, but would would the average viewer Depends watch a different? What the story is, I guess it would be like a school reunion, mm. where you could bring the doctor back and say, "This is who I used to be." And make a compare and contrast story. Mm. So, like in Rose and Sarah Jane in School Reunion, there's a compare and contrast between those two characters. So, if you brought Paul McGann back and had him with Peter Capaldi, Peter Capaldi, you'd have to have a compare and contrast between those two characters. But that's why I think it doesn't work because I don't think Paul McGann and Peter Capaldi are different enough. No, you're well, absolutely right. You'd you'd have to put Capaldi into Paul McGann's world, and it would have to be Paul McGann's world. Where he's in the time war, but not coping with it at all well. A big that's the, helps him through, that's the interesting thing about the Paul McGann doctor in the in the I series. Think, yeah, it's, see, it's, I think you've got to remove now, yeah, from the con- continuity in that respect. Yeah, I think you're playing a dangerous game. Once yeah, that's stick. that's why I think you know, Capaldi's got to do what he did with River Song, which is to yeah. keep Sturm about so what maybe he knows. What Stephen Moffat is has looked at the downloads on Night of the Doctor. Mm. And because maybe he'd wanted to have Paul McGann in John Hurt's shoes in the day of the Doctor and wasn't able to, so maybe he thought to himself, well, I'll bring him back in the series instead, mm. and said, you know, on the record, as much, I'd like to bring him back in the series. And of course Paul McGann said, oh, I'd love to come back in the series. And then maybe Stephen Moffat sat down and thought about it and thought, well, actually there isn't a story to be told, mm. not one that works. Yeah, but this is my this is what I feel. I don't think there's a story to be told with Paul McGann in the new. It's series. almost that's what I'm there's saying, a, there, yeah. but there is a story. But that's what it would have there to be. There is a story to be told just with Paul McGann. But I don't think you can tell it in the telly. I think maybe you've got to treat it like a proper spin-off. Because I was yeah, thinking, yeah. well, you'd have to put him in a situation like on Gallifrey at the start mm-hmm. of the time war or something like that. So it becomes yeah. a different genre almost. Yeah, yeah. I'd I'd go completely differently. Mm. I'd I'd do a sort of a war conspiracy. Yeah. And and I'd be feeling I'd feel completely happy with that being, so long as it was in. So my point about it being a, a five episode oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. in the week, it's in a different format from the series, so mm. you can sort of so psychologically keep it separate. Yeah, mm. it's enclosed. It's it's a one off, and you do that until I mean Torchwood did that, and it felt and that was the strongest Torchwood series, mm. but it mm. felt. Different. It felt. Yeah. It felt different from those series. Yeah. And I think and that programs. And I've, I always seem to be bringing this up, but Hollyoaks does every now and again, once mm. a year, once every two years, they do something called I think it's called Hollyoaks Later, mm-hmm. where the a bunch of the main characters will go off and have a discrete story mm. over five nights of one week, and they show it late at night, like half past ten or something. Yeah. And it's a complete self-contained discrete story that these yeah. characters have away from the main series. Yeah. And the reason it's on at half past ten is because it deals with more adult stuff. Mm. But you know what I mean? That's like just a precedent of a series that goes off and says, right, we do something different, we'll stick it in a different format. Yeah. 
all the other option is that you get someone like Peter Capaldi does a, like a voiceover. It starts, starts like you're saying about the Matt Smith bit. Starts telling the story about yeah. how did it all start. I just keep it. <laughs> that sounds like it. That sounds like something Lee would suggest. That well, kind well of, you'd have a flashback d- story. Yeah, but trying to trying to tie it in with the main series, I think it's safer just to keep it. Mm. Keep so it Doctor separate. Who's... still recognisably in the Doctor. Doctor Who's now a Doctor Who. There's now a universe because it's got it's had spin-offs. It's got Torchwood. It's mm. got Class. Mm. It's had Sarah Jane. And you because can you can watch all of the last twelve years of Doctor Who on repeat <laughs> in a variety of different formats at whatever time of day or year you choose mm. so you can easily go back to any point within the continuity and say we're going to do a story set there because it's a story about time travel yeah and if, so, you, but, if you make it about if you make it a genre a particular genre like a war story mm, or a conspiracy mm, like the thriller, sequel to Battlestar Galactica yeah mm. then suddenly suddenly you're in a different genre from what you're used to you're in a different format from what you're used to you've got a recognizable doctor character so you can you'll just automatically make that connection, mm. and it's safe and it's enclosed. I mean, it might, you know, they could tie it up with the the present series continuity. Pre- yeah, but so you're saying you've got this horrible prequel trap. Yeah, but, mm. yeah, I don't think it can happen. No, mm. well, it's a nice idea. Paul McGann's a big actor, still fairly not doing badly. It'll be interesting to watch I'll watch Rogue One next week. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Well, this is this, is, this is what Star Wars is sort mm. of doing. Mm. You have the main, you main ongoing story, and then every so every other year they kind of dip in. It's exactly what Star Wars is doing, mm. and Star Trek in a way, they just sort of you know play and, around with it a little bit. And sort of Harry Potter's now doing it. Yeah. Where you've mm. although obviously the Harry Potter story's finished, yes. and now afterwards they've gone back. Yeah. But. Potentially, if the Harry Potter films had been every other year, the beastly, beastly things, whatever it is, fantastic stories, beasts. fantastic beast stories, could have happened in between. But also, it's it's exactly like that because they they discovered that actually, when they got to the end of the Harry Potter series, they told a story not about Harry Potter but about this world that Harry mm. Potter lives in, and there are more stories to grow from that. And it's the same thing with Doctor Who. They told the story about the Doctor, but then they've discovered well, they've, they've told got the story an entire about the universe. Time war. Yeah. yeah, and they've got this universe that they can play with. Mm-hmm. I think it's doable. Mm. It's, they won't do it because it would be too expensive, I would guess. Mm-hmm. But, yes, that's the. But maybe that's know, the big yeah. cross in the box mm. is that if you want to do a story set in the Doctor Who universe, it's going to cost as much as Doctor Who does. Yeah, but unless you put it out as regular style Doctor Who, it's not probably going to be watched by the same audience mm. yeah the average audience member would say I don't understand why they, we haven't got the latest Doctor <clears throat> if it's Doctor Who why isn't it Peter Capaldi yeah should we knows? should we talk about class for a bit because we had those teenagers on talking about class a few episodes ago mm. but that was just before the series ended and now the series has ended well I didn't really give my opinion then and Simon you've not and Matt's not really been watching it. I've seen one episode, and which is the first one. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, I will, I will watch it. <clears throat> I just was was so, and I know that people say it gets better. And actually, I've heard all the all the information about it. I've been listening to the Canadians talking <clears throat> about it every week, and so I'm I'm aware that it gets better, and I'm thoroughly prepared to be excited. But I've just been watching Russian movies too much. 
It fluctuates time. enough to make it interesting for you. So right. don't just think yes. it gets better and better because I do think it fluctuates. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Right. I think the arc story in the middle was... I wouldn't say there were any weak parts necessarily, but I'd say the arc story in the middle, the two-parter in the middle, mm. is not the strongest of the stories mm. that it tells. Mm. But the stories that it does tell are all connected with one another and sometimes not in immediately apparent ways. Okay. Um, right, here's the thing. It's a young adult drama, right? And I think it escaped... An awful lot of people who are watching it who are not young adults, what young adult drama means. Mm. Young adult drama is literally about telling stories about going through puberty. Mm. Right? It's not about telling stories about kiddie things. Mm. And it's not about telling stories that are, you know, child friendly or even teen friendly. Mm. But it is actually about telling stories that are relevant to puberty. Mm. And here's what I think is... I hesitate to call it a stroke of genius, but here's the thing that Patrick Ness does that I don't think a lot of people of the wrong ages watching it recognised and so probably distanced them partly from it because this probably seemed unnecessary... But when you're going through puberty, what happens is your body changes. Mm. And it... No, Matt's sneering because he doesn't <laughs> want to talk about puberty. No, no, I just don't want to listen to you talking about puberty. Because it sounds patronising. No, because it's like you're going to go, sometimes and then hair grows where there was no hair. And no, then, what I was going to say was... Sorry, go on. Well... It, I'm, I'm going to I'm listen to this silently because I haven't seen class. Okay. So I've got to let, I'm going to listen to you talking about... I'm not giving anything away. No, that's fine. That's fine. I'll Hang listen on. to you talking about puberty. Just before we recorded this podcast, you were saying about how you weren't bothered by spoilers. I'm not bothered by spoilers. I'm not worried that JR's <laughs> going to... I'm not worried about JR revealing spoilers. I'm worried about JR talking about puberty and it freaking the hell out of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, the point I'm going to make isn't about that side of puberty. Okay. It's not I'm a biology say, lesson. When you're a teenager, the changes that occur make you feel like you're a different person. Mm. And what I'm saying is that a way to represent that in fiction or on screen is by making the fact that you're a different person a literal change mm. rather than uh, a biological <laughs> change. Mm. So what Patrick Ness has done... And he does this across more than one character, is he takes April. Interesting. And he puts somebody else's heart in her body, essentially, yeah. is what he's done. And so April goes through a literal change that the teenagers watching it will recognise in a metaphorical sense. Spider-Man. Yeah, and absolutely. And genius of yeah, Spider-Man, was a teenager. So... But And what Ness does then is that he allows the rest of the fiction mm. to come out of that basic concept that he is literalising this change. Mm. So you've got four episodes that um, very ostentatiously are about this change. And then in between each of those, you've got two other episodes that tell you something about the universe within which this change takes place mm. one of the things Ness does that 
you might find more interesting that okay is he also talks about the journey of discovery mm. when you're i don't know how you can when you're a child you get told certain things father christmas is a real person and as you develop what? and grow there are no four-year-olds listening to this podcast uh. Sam. as you develop and grow you make up your own mind on these things mm -hmm. so obviously one of the things that a lot of people in this country and around the world are told about when they're little is about the existence of god mm. and patrick ness very very deliberately does two episodes that are about the existence of god and an okay. afterlife and whether there's such a thing as heaven and reincarnation mm. and all these other things he goes into those areas in a sci-fi way mm. that's very science fictiony and in fact, I listened to one podcast. I can't remember which one it was because I've been listening to three different podcasts reviewing this. And one of them, I think it was the Doctor Who show. Rob Irwin on the Doctor Who show, I said, mm. gets to episode seven and he says, oh, I love this one because it's really sci-fi. It's not. Actually, it's a story about God and whether God exists. But because he puts it in sci-fi trappings, it looks like it's a sci-fi story. Mm. And actually, what it is, episode seven, is Dante's Inferno. Mm. He sends one of the characters through, as it turns out, four, because it's in 45 minutes, through four circles of afterlife on a journey to being reborn, literally reborn. There's a shot at the end where she's almost literally climbing out of the birth chamber at the end of the episode. She's literally reborn having gone through a journey through four different varieties of afterlife into a position whereby, and again, I don't know if this is a spoiler for you now, this might be the one thing I'm about to spoil, into a position whereby she is going to die and give new life to a new creature. Mm. And also, this creature is a cross-fertilized creature between two different species. Mm. So as you can see, Patrick Ness, I've heard people say things like his storylines are woolly. Mm. This isn't remotely woolly. This is really deep and involved stuff. Mm. There's a novelist mm. called David Almond who's very similar, who <clears throat> who who tackles, who who tells stories about children. That tackle... That, that tackle things about religion. Mm. Well, look at Narnia. Belief and, well, mm. yeah, yeah, although Narnia does it, you know, with a big hammer. Yes. Yeah. Or Lord of the Rings. I mean, Lord of the Rings is a... Mm. Well, I thought Patrick Ness was doing it with a big hammer, but actually it turns out the reviews I've been writing have been the only ones who've even mentioned it. <laughs> Nobody else seems to have noticed. Yeah. Anyway, the point is, obviously, when you're a teenager is when you start to question whether your parents were right when they told you about God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what he's doing. He's telling stories that are absolutely relevant to 16 and 17-year-olds. Mm. And if you're not a 16 and a 17-year-old, you've either got to get on board with the fact that he's doing that or it's not going to mean anything to you. Mm. And that's not an excuse, is it? It's, that's just that's just the, the fact of meeting his audience. And Yeah. yeah. But people are saying it was bad storytelling. No, it's not bad storytelling any more than Arthur Christmas is bad storytelling. Arthur Christmas is for 8-year-olds. Yeah. Class is for 16-year-olds. And, you know, if you want to watch something like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, that's for, like, 40 years. I've heard people saying about this this business, you know, you get, like, your Toy Stories, which will operate on a level where all ages can enjoy it. Mm. 
but with this sort of subject matter, I don't think you can do that. No, it's no. You, you could put in things like you know there are exploding bodies who get blown up and stuff like this. Yeah. A guy gets his leg chopped off, and the last episode's pretty gory as well. Mm. You can throw in a bit of. There's gore. no room for innuendo, is there? No, it's, it's right. pretty much there in your face. It's, okay. <clears throat> I thought it was more in its more in your face than it was, but it seems to be going by a lot of people. Mm. I thought it was really. I thought it was really quite simple, really. I thought it was really clever and really intelligent. And in the final episode, all of the things that he's brought up, because he sets about three or four plates spinning mm. with the characters that another writer might have strung out across several series, but he answers them all in the last episode and then sets up a couple of things. And the thing that you've been spoiled on is something yes. that he's got nothing to do with series one right. that is entirely setting up for the second series. Okay. Mm. Okay. Mm. Which may or may not happen. I have a feeling the second series was already commissioned before okay. series one went out. Okay. But I don't think they're prepared to say so yet. Right. Okay. But Patrick Ness tweeted something certainly... the other day that said, Oh, I've got something to announce, but I can't announce it until right. I'm told I'm allowed it to. It certainly okay. plays out like a series that knows it's got another one coming. Yeah. So, um, there's I mean, no Pat- question one thing that I would... the first series would have ended where it did. Uh, Patrick Ness Not is just... about to get bigger as well. Because he's just got a big movie out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then I think one of the good things about this is it's a case of he's written all eight in this first series, but he's made it so strong that I think with the second series you can bring in other writers because they'll already know this universe now Mm. and then perhaps hand over the reins to somebody else altogether with the third series having set it up. Interesting. Episode three is the one that stands out as a different animal. That's the one that kind of operates like a long, like a long-term series, where you'll suddenly get it where it diverts slightly. It's quite clever in as much as it helps to build, kind of bulk up these characters, but at the same time operate on its own. But what episode three like a Twilight Zone episode is introduces all the themes that get addressed in episode seven. Mm. So it kind of really. Because episode three does as much of a job as episode seven in addressing those themes, the religious ones, but it does it in such a completely different way mm. that it kind of gets in under the radar. Mm. It took me by surprise after the first two that all of a sudden it was like, oh, is this how it's going to be? This is like a okay. really cool episode. One I've, of the complaints I've, I've about heard negative it, reviews of it. One of the complaints about it is that people are forever stopping and talking when they should be getting somewhere and getting something <laughs> sorted out. Yeah. They're teenagers. Yeah. That's what teenagers do, basically, I There's, think. Yeah, stuff like that happens like the... I don't know. I don't know. They were, I felt like everyone seemed to be talking to their parents a lot, which was very healthy, but I don't, I'm not sure if it was realistic or not. You know, that the, the, these things were happening to them, and they were immediately talking to their parents about it, and the parents were involved. Yeah, two of them. Yeah. I yeah, but actually that was quite nice because you know it's nice yeah because otherwise it would have been it could have gone too far into the oh god my parents would never better never find out about what's going on yeah yeah and actually given what happens to all those parents <laughs> <laughs> you haven't got many surprises left have you Matt one thing I will say about the series though I've been really impressed first thing is my favourite thing is the theme but I had yeah. no idea it was a five year old record so yeah yeah. Did you, had you did you already know it before it was on there? No, I didn't know the song, but I read immediately afterwards that it was an old record. Yeah. So I basically knew from the start. Yeah, and it's one of those where I was I was fearful of... Uh, if you go on the BBC website, they give you a link to 
a Spotify playlist so you can hear a lot of the music that was used in the series and the and the whole version of the theme is there. I thought it was going to be like a Babylon Zoo thing where it was that was the one good bit and the rest wasn't anywhere near as good but it's actually a really good track. Oh wow. If mm. you can put up with the irritating singing. Mm-hmm. Um but the other thing I wanted to say is I think that some of the effects work in this series incredible. Yeah. I don't know whether it's because of the situation that it's it's used more might have had more money because it might have had more money this year because of there not being Episode any Doctor Who. Episode 7 is something else. When they go to that world where it's all pink, mm-hmm. I know that's just a colorization thing, but seriously, it's just yeah, yeah, yeah. so alien. Wow. And it and it made me think of Planet of Evil. It right. made me think of... Well, they world, literally just filled building. it in a forest yes. and told the computer to make everything that was green pink. Right. So literally... Everything else about the picture is just normal. Yeah, but then it's like Dark Crystal because there's these little creatures, these little plants <laughs> that as they walk towards them, they disappear inside. And it made, right. made me think of Dark Crystal. Wow. I just think, oh, I want to see Doctor Who do this. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there's a lot to be kind of gained from it. Mm. I'd like People are saying, would you like to see Patrick Ness then do an episode of Doctor Who? I would, because I think the episode of Doctor Who that Patrick Ness would do would be like the one that Frank Cottrell Boyce did, and mm. I loved that episode. Mm. But I don't think if he did, his episode would be very popular, by and large. No. Mm. Right, anyway, we have been talking far longer than we thought we would, mm. <laughs> and it's the middle of the week, and it's nearly midnight, so it's probably time to wrap it. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh, what, no, one thing, just very, very, very brief, briefly about class. One of the main characters is essentially, we were talking about Day of the Doctor. This is why I'm saying it, because the two relate. Mm-hmm. He's got a character who is essentially being the the one who potentially is committing genocide. Yeah. So and actually, again, that's... So he's essentially being the character who the Doctor avoids being. But again, that's like a fundamental metaphor about being a teenager. Because one of the things about being a teenager as well is that... Being a teenager is where, for some people, I'm sort of generalising here, but, you know, pubescence, it's different people in different ways. But one of the things about being a teenager is you feel immortal and Mm. you feel omnipotent. You know, you feel like the world is at your feet and anything can happen. And actually, you're walking down the street thinking you can do anything Mm. and you're going to live forever and the rest of the world is just completely ignoring you. Yeah, it takes mm. it takes ten to fifteen years before you realise that you're just a small cog in a massive machine, and you're exactly, doomed to yeah. a life of drudgery, boredom. And that's what this particular <laughs> character's storyline's about. Admin. They've made him this alien prince who's in charge of the entire population mm. of his planet. Yeah. But they've also given him a situation where he can't do anything about the entire population of his planet. So he's kind of caught in this teenage situation of being completely omnipotent but at the same time completely impotent, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is, like I say, another metaphor for something that teens go through. I think Mm. it's a really intelligent programme. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's definitely intelligence. But you just have to recognise it, I guess, and I guess... And and then realise how it's wrapped up. Mm. Yeah. The ending is just... The last episode is a tour de force. Okay. Okay. See, see, for me, I need to watch it again because there's that ending... Well, so that's that, a different thing. But I can't. I couldn't help thinking, falling into that trap of thinking. Well, where were the clues? Well, there are no and clues, it, and there are no clues. Well, no, that's well. What you've got? Okay, let's say it because people probably know it. It's been yeah. all over the internet now. At the end, the weeping angels turn. <gasps> 
<laughs> but what's been happening is you've had these people, the governors, yeah. introduced, and you've known from the start that there's something going on, mm. but you don't know whether they're going to be on our side or against us. You don't even know if they're human. You don't know what they are or who they are. They're in the story, and sometimes they're helping out, mm. and sometimes they only appear to be helping out, but you never know what their motives are. Mm. And then at the end, you discover that their motives are that they've been sent as a kind of preemptive force to pave the way for an angel invasion. Okay. So, so my, my concerns are, because there weren't clues, is that the the angels are becoming this one-size-fits-all like, uh, race. No, I think what's really intelligent about this mm. is that actually now you can take the angels and take what they do and take what they are and because you've got a series to tell that story across instead of having to do the sort of one note thing that Stephen Moffat was doing each time he had them you can actually investigate that yeah but equally there was this idea that all of a sudden oh the angels can do that all oh, the angels can do that all mm. oh, and we were getting these new abilities all the time so that's my concern is that all of a sudden there's a whole new load of stuff going on in it, and it, and there's far more manipulation going on. And mm. I don't know. I like I that know. about the angels, though. Okay, they're sort of malleable. Yeah, no. And what I think is really great here is that by telling it across a variety of different stories, presumably across a series, because it's again it'll be interconnected, but each episode will be to a degree discreet. Mm. I think you can. The angels won't necessarily be in all of them, but the angels will be there as a threat in the background. But I, I think it gives you the opportunity to look at a particular aspect of what the angels are and what they represent and actually expand on our reaction to that. Because mm. what you've never had is, what does it mean? Mm. You know, in Blink, it was, this is what the angels do, and that facilitated the plot where the Doctor needs to get the TARDIS back. Mm. And in Time of Angels, it facilitated the plot about the crashing spaceship and the arrival of the cracks in time. And in Angels Take Manhattan, it facilitated the Doctor losing Rory and Amy. But on none of those occasions did you really get a chance to think about what the angels mean. Mm. And this, and also, because it's a different writer and it's not Stephen Moffat, yeah. you can get an objective opinion of what the angels mean and put that up on television. I'm excited by it. I think it would be really good. The fact the angels are this concept as opposed to a... Yeah, that's what I mean. It's mm, like, okay. because they're not... Because... It's, Otherwise, if if the angels because they're not written a, in stone. <laughs> well, if the angels were just something like the Santarans, they turn up and it would be like, you know, so the Santarans are here this week, so we defeat them this week, and then mm. they come back next week and mm. we defeat them again. But mm. because the angels are a concept, you have to do that story conceptually. Mm. Mm. But also, you do it in a way that's a metaphor for all the things that I've been talking about for the last twenty minutes. And again, you do it in a way that things have just occurred to me. Yeah, okay. Mm. About episode seven and the angels. Interesting. Oh, why what? The fact that in episode seven, you've got this idea that ideas become become tangible. Well, and maybe that's how they come to invade or something. Mm. Because once you introduce something like the metaphysical engine, Mm. it's there to be used again. Mm. But see, that's a concept fighting with another concept fighting with a metaphor 
And if you can use the concepts and the metaphor and make it into a story that kind of follows that A to B plot, you could come up with a really exciting piece of television. Mm. And I think with this series, he's proved that if anybody's the writer to do that, well, it would be either him or Moffat, and Moffat's not going to, so it's mm. him. And I like the idea that it's not Moffat because he gets this objective approach to Moffat's idea. Yeah, it's almost like Weeping Angels have been handed to a writer who's worthy made of him. for it. Yeah. 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 I know, yeah. I think that's really exciting. Okay. Right. Uh, well, I think what we'll do is we'll say Merry Christmas. Oh, is it? This I is the last that. time we'll be together before Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Chink. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, somebody's taking a Christmas carol just a little bit too far. <laughs> um, I still, to this point, do not know what's happening next week. But until then... I was Matt. I was Simon. I was JR. And we'll speak again soon. Oh, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.